Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you find a career you love, start a business, and generally crush it at life. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, we have Amitesh Bhagwan, who is an innovation manager at Disney. We discuss his MBA experience, including the challenges that international students face when trying to get an MBA, especially in the United States, and specifically talk about his experience at USC, go through the hiring process for interns at places like Dollar Shave Club, where he ended up interning during his MBA experience, as well as Airbnb. We discuss product management in depth, all different things related to product management, also going into startups and entrepreneurship, including things like validating your ideas and talking to those first customers. The show notes for this episode, as always, are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can find a specific episode there. Patreon.com slash justgogrind is where you can support the show. And in iTunes, please do leave a rating and review. It takes all of a few seconds, but is very helpful for helping the show grow. Hope you enjoy this episode with Amitesh Bhagwan, Innovation Manager at Disney. Amitesh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Justin. Excited to be here. Yeah, we connected... A few months ago, actually, when I had just, I think, gotten into USC, you gave me some input after I had asked some questions. And I was like, this USC network is real. And uh, <laughs> I was like, this is pretty interesting. I want to start there, actually. So when you were even going, like, applying to USC and the first year, like, did you notice that network? It was something special right away? Like, what did you think? Um, so I guess in my case, I was an international applicant. So I was applying all the way from India. And uh, the def- the network was definitely there, but it took a little bit of effort. And I don't think that's because anything to do with USC in particular. It's just to do with uh, external factors that nobody controls, like LinkedIn, and the fact that so many people actually don't check their LinkedIn messages, right? But um, I think the most memorable um, validation I got from a USC alum was how he described the alumni network. He said, oh, it's the SoCal Mafia. You just drop the name and you get a job anywhere in Southern California. Right. And uh, that's been true to this day. Even after I came out here, uh, not just Southern California, but, you know, there's there's a recognition for the brand name of the university and appreciation for it. Yeah. It's a a special thing. And even looking at other schools, it wasn't the same. Like, it clearly clearly wasn't the same when I was, like, visiting other schools. It was Mm -hmm. cool, but it was, like... Not the same level as, I guess, like, yeah, like Southern California Mafia type of thing. It just wasn't the same type of thing as you oh, yeah. see. Yeah, totally. In fact, I think another memorable way of it, the way it was put was I had this classmate who, after we all got in, they asked a question of, like, what made you choose USC? And uh, uh, he was an American classmate of mine. He had a very interesting way. He said, this is what I did when I was applying to schools. Um, whenever I'd be in public and I'd see someone wearing a jersey of the school I was interested in, I would shout out the name of their sports team and then I'd see how they would respond. <laughs> and he said, time and again, when I did that for Trojans, they always reciprocated in a very nice way. It's yeah. some way that's one way to know, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess even going back, you came to USC from India. Like, did you know for sure you wanted to come to the States back then? Like, you for sure wanted to study business in the States, in the oh. United States? Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess I was one of those cases where cases of those people who were certain of uh, which country they want to go to and what kind of a program they want to specialize in. Because right. keep in mind that I'd spent, I'd worked for nearly six years before I came for my MBA, yeah. uh, as opposed to so many of my classmates who probably 
worked for far fewer number of years. So it's a little harder, but because I'd spent those six years, I had a much, much clearer idea of the direction I wanted to go in. Right, so you had enough work experience where you, you really knew exactly what you wanted at this point, basically. Yeah, yeah. and it also helped that um, um, I worked for an American company, I worked for Cisco, yeah. so I had a lot of colleagues in the US, and I traveled to the United States before on work. And uh, growing up, I had a lot of family who had been working or living in the United States. So in multiple ways, it was a very familiar environment. And having worked with Americans, what I noticed, and I, I worked, I had worked over those six years with people from other cultures, like for a large part of my career, I'd worked with Japanese people in Japan. Um, so I did have a sampling of different work environments, and the American work environment was the most unique and super conducive to the idea of entrepreneurship and uh, technology-based digital innovation. Yeah. Right, so it made a lot of sense for me to kind of come down here and decide to invest my time and money in uh, kind of working in this culture and environment for which it was very easy to see the advantages. Right, and even that process, so I know, you know talking to other classmates of mine, class of 2020, like it's even more challenging for an international student coming to business school. It's already challenging for anyone coming to business school, like, especially if you live in the United States. Can you tell me a little bit, a little bit about that experience, like application process, moving here, the challenges of that? Because other people who listen to it will inevitably be from other countries, and if they want to get an MBA, for instance, in the United States, like what are some of those challenges, or like what, what was difficult about the process, maybe, for you? Sure, sure. Um, I think all the international students know how challenging it is, or the uniqueness of being an international applicant, uh, but sometimes even we don't realize it, and we realize it when we start talking with the local students after we come down here. Uh, yeah. For example, for us, the application cycle starts nearly one and a half years or two years beforehand. Really? Uh, yeah, so that's like, <laughs> that's having to do this weird thing called long-term thinking when you're so much younger. Right? Yeah. Like, when you're in your 20s, it's really hard to think beyond the horizon of, I don't know, like one, two, three years. Um, so, just, just to give you an example, I think my class, I was part of the class of 2018, so the course started in uh, August, September 2016, right? And that's the timeline. But I had applied one year before, around October of 2015. I'd finished my application by then. Yeah. And um, it takes a couple of months worth of effort to put your application together. Right. Which means if I had finished and submitted my application by October, I kind of got started in March. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now, if I'm getting started in March, I'm only talking about the uh, writing the essay part, right? Uh, taking the GMAT and getting a good score that took its own. That was a whole different beast. Yeah. So oh, the GMAT. <laughs> yeah. Now we're already in 2014. We're going backwards. Versus, I guess, uh, some of my American classmates, and I'm not saying all of my American classmates were in this boat, but uh, quite a few of my American classmates told me that they were like, "Hey, you know, March 2016." I was like, "You know." I think it's time to go to business school and I applied and I got through and I was like you applied four months before really? <laughs> that's a little that's a little late though to, to be fair that's a little bit late yeah, in the process yeah, but yeah that's true that wasn't really possible for you I should say yeah it's not at all possible yeah. right because uh, uh, business schools have that whole concept of round one round two round three yeah. and the round one typically starts off as early as one year before the start of the program yeah and you're strongly encouraged to apply as early as possible for so many reasons Right. right. So, yeah, that's one thing. Another challenge is uh, we have to make decisions based off of uh, information on the internet, right? Um, as opposed to uh, when you're domestic, you have the opportunity to actually visit the university 
and kind of do tours of the program, talk to people who are actually part of the program, and you know, hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Right. Uh, but for us, it was um, having to kind of um, pour over information on internet forums. Um, there were ways to supplement and kind of get ahead and talk to people who are part of the program and reach out to Adams. That was through LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, Big, yeah, it's a strong resource there, LinkedIn, for oh, sure. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So thankful gosh. for, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that entails uh, prep work and jumping through its own set of hoops. For instance, um, I'd have to plan and uh, to get to the response rate on LinkedIn for obvious reasons uh, is never 100%. It's far away from it. Right. So for every four people you contact, maybe one of them responds. Or eventually people do respond, but by the time they responded, it's too late. So yeah. you need to kind of set up this huge funnel and contact so many people and go through all of that. Um, but having said all of that, it's, I guess I want to say it's okay because um, we're all, as international students, when we apply, we have more or less an idea of the uphill battle that we're going to go up against if we want to study abroad or do an MBA in the U.S. Right. Yeah, you have an idea, so you know it's coming, I guess, which yeah. maybe ignorance is bliss because you don't really know comparably how much maybe easier it might be for someone else. You just know it's going to be hard anyways. Yeah. So you don't really worry about that, I suppose. In a manner of speaking, I mean, it's one of those cases where when the rubber hits the road, you're always surprised. Yeah. And even in this, you're like, oh my God, I don't realize how hard this is. But uh, yeah, the, that awareness kind of helps you push through and persevere. Yeah. So you spent... It's like, like six years working. You're engineering, right? So or what were you doing before? I was more on the technical side. Okay. I did my undergrad in engineering and started off on a traditionally technical role. Okay. But then over time, uh, and the vast majority of my career was a hybrid role. Uh, to give you an example, uh, at Cisco, at one point of time, my title was network consulting engineer. So I was a consultant, more on the technical side. Okay. Right. Um, and then at some point of time, I also did a little bit of pre-sales work. So even in pre-sales, in the context of technological products, you don't, um, so when a salesperson kind of goes there and speaks with the client, they need to have a technical person complimenting them in case the client side starts to kind of go deep and start asking technical questions. Right. So uh, it was, yeah, that's what I mean by a hybrid role. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's what you had it the whole time or just more so certain stages of your yeah, time Yeah, only there? in the initial stages, right? Okay. So I'd say probably like the first one to two years was when I was doing hardcore uh, traditional engineering work. Um, after after year two, I started to kind of branch out and start trying things that were more in line with what I wanted to do. And I had some kind of a, in hindsight, I think it's fair to call it a vision, but when I was going through it, <laughs> it's never that cl- clear. You're just yeah. kind of trying to eliminate things off your list and focus more on things that you like. Right. Right. And of course, um, after the Cisco phase, for two years, I worked for an early state startup and that was a complete change. Okay. Uh, I kind of did my career transition there. So before business school even started. Yeah, yeah. So when I left Cisco and joined the startup, I went there with specific goals, and one of the goals was I will do anything but technical work. I will complement the engineering team and do whatever is necessary that they can't do. Yeah. Right? So that was essentially how I transitioned. So essentially, I started off as a marketing specialist, and then I started, I was the head of marketing, okay. and after that I was head of operations. And after that I became the product manager. So all of those are non-technical non-tech- roles. Clearly. But... So from engineering, from like the thing you're doing to then a marketing role, how did that, how did you even choose that function? Um, or how did that happen? You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah, actually, yeah. Let's, let's provide <laughs> it's, more it's context. Kind of a, it's kind of a big, yeah. It does. It does, right? So, 
Um, and th- I think that goes back to my last few years at Cisco. I'd started uh, chasing after roles and profiles that were more in line with what I wanted to do. Right. So this was again, you know what? Let's let's kind of put a timeline to this. I yeah. started off at Cisco in 2009, right out of my undergrad in engineering. And the first one year I was doing engineering stuff, and then around the end of the second year I was like, hey, this is not cutting it. You know, <laughs> I had this idea of the reason I did engineering to a large extent was because uh, growing up as a kid I was a total techno gadget geek. To give you an example, sure. The boombox and the DVD player, I would I would open it up. And I wouldn't know what the hell is going on. I'm talking like when I was 12, 13 years, but yeah. I would be so fascinated by it, right? And that 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 desire and that excitement towards it kind of like paved the way towards engineering, engineering yeah. right? And and also there was this other side of me. I would constantly be building things of stuff at home. To give you an example of what I mean by building stuff, it was like a wide range of things. I had this toy growing up called the Metal Mechano set. I don't know, I'm sure you have that. <laughs> we probably, I think we, mechanic, like the... Erector, erector set type of thing? like a, Yeah, so like you have these little nuts and bolts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like Lego, but slightly more, you know, with nuts and bolts. A little and more advances, pieces. yeah. Yeah, so I did that. That was the kind of person I was growing up, yeah. right? So it felt like engineering was the perfect way for me to do what I wanted to do, which was, I was like, hey, I want to create products, or, you know, I see this problem, uh, and then this seems like the perfect <laughs> car to build or motor to set up or circuit to build, what have you, right, right to solve that problem. Uh, so that's how I got into it. But then about two years into my role, I realized that what engineers do is answer the question of how do we build this thing? What should we build has already been defined by others. Before right? that. Before before you come to the stage of involving the engineers. Right. So I think I realized that about one and a half years into my job. So I started focusing on trying to find what is that role where I get to make that decision of what needs to be built or why it needs to be built. Yeah. And... Um, so that's when you know I started kind of trying different roles, and I went into uh, pre-sales because uh, at that point of time, marketing and sales were the folks that would be involved in conversations with the client before engineering went in. Right. Right. So I started working with them, and I realized that there were some pieces of weather that I liked, but not quite yet. Right. Uh, I think around the um, third or fourth year, um, I had more clarity, and it started to. It was clear that the answer to the question I was chasing was product management. Right, because I met this product manager. I think it was just I'm able to remember even that event and that day when it happened. The first time there was this product manager who walked into a room, and this was because I had this customer-facing role. So customers used to constantly come and tell me what they were looking for or how the product worked. So internal teams had an incentive to contact me. I was the voice of the customer for them. So all these engineering teams, when they would build stuff. Uh, or when they were in the designing phase, they would take input from the people who are customer-facing. Right. So that was essentially how I set up that relationship where I got to interact with the product teams. And um, so there was this conversation where a product manager came in, and he was like, oh, so is that what the client said? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Thank you so much for that information. And I'm like, oh, so that is the role. That's, that's right? the one I want. He's the man. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's the, guy, he's the guy who's doing those things that I've always wanted to do, right? Um, you, know, so, you know, something you said with that, though, with, because I don't think, people are always curious on how to change roles or do that. So you mentioned, like, I was, like, a year and a half in or something, and you knew that wasn't quite what you wanted, mm-hmm. and you switched roles within the company. Mm-hmm. How did you approach that? Did you just, like, you knew, and then you're like, I'll just tell my boss now. Like, or, like, what happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's good. I'm glad you bring that up. Um, to some extent, it was the culture in my company. Okay. Right? Um 
at Cisco and in the particular team that I had been working for, uh, they were really forward thinking. Uh, I'm sure it helped that, that we were constantly in touch with the customer, so we weren't in this little silo. So there was this encouragement within the team. I had these encouraging, ma- encouraging managers who were like, hey, if you guys have an idea, you know, run with it. You have autonomy in the way you function. So that laid this foundation uh, or supportive environment. Yeah. So I would constantly go to my boss with, you know, these ideas or these thoughts. And, uh, you know, initially it started off with, hey, why don't we do this? And he would explain why we couldn't. But at some point of time, I don't know if he just got fed up with me or <laughs> I, I managed to come up with better ideas. How much has enough? <laughs> yeah. He was like, you know what? That's actually a good idea. Why don't you run with it? Right. So that kind of became the foundation for this uh, software as a service idea that I came up with. Right. Again, when I started off with that idea, I think it was just more like me going to my manager and saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm a little saturated with this role. I want to do more of that. Right. Yeah. Um, in hindsight, I guess what really helped me do transitions within the company from one role to another was when I would go to my whoever my manager was at the point of time, I wouldn't just tell them I'm bored with this, right. right? I would tell them, hey, listen, I'm saturated with this, but I've identified this other thing that I can contribute to, and here's how I can contribute. Can I can I do that? Right. right? So you just you approach it in terms of like getting more onto what you already have, not being not just being like this sucks. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, right? Yeah. Which is helpful. Yes, it is. And I think, again, that that just comes out of uh, observing how your environment is. And I had noticed when people are always constantly getting saturated with their jobs. You always have friends or colleagues who are fed up, right? Yeah. And I had noticed whenever they would say they're fed up and directly go tell their managers I'm fed up, managers do what they're supposed to do in a situation like that, which is give them a change of project, Right. right? But then at that point of time, these people would kind of rely on the manager, hoping that the manager would find the perfect project for them. And I think I didn't do that. Yeah. I was I would kind of get a little ahead, go talk to the teams on the project that I thought made sense, talk to them and try to understand what they were doing, and pitch myself to them and confirm all of that stuff, and then go to my manager and say, "Hey, I have this idea." How did How did you know to do that? Or have you Have you always been that way? Because people you mentioned like people don't always do it. A lot of people in their career take a passive approach, right? They like they're waiting for something to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think everyone's active like that. Have you always just been like that? Or like, what do you think? I think so. In hindsight, actually, what I mean by I think so is, in hindsight, it's clear that that's the kind of person I am. Yeah. But while I was doing those things, I didn't realize this was the strategy I had. It was more from a, hey, I just don't want to take a chance gambling or just rolling my dice and hoping (laughs) things will work out in the direction that I want. I need to kind of clearly communicate and make sure that the person who's making the decision actually has a way out to help me with. Right. Yeah. So you almost it's like yeah, making it easier for them to help you. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, like, right? Like what's in, that line? Like, help me help, help you. Help me help me help you. That, yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> so you transition from there, like you're able to get roles that were I guess more fitting for you and what you wanted in your career essentially. And yeah. then you ended up going through that going then you went to a start you said an early stage startup, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so quickly skipping on ahead to that, uh, what what got me from that phase in Cisco when I pitched an idea to my manager yeah. and he said let's go with it and you know, because I'd spoken with marketing and sales folks at that point of time, it was like a six month effort, but we managed to power through and actually create something new, a new revenue stream. Great. Right? Um, so you could say that was the foundation that kind of helped me get towards that early startup entrepreneurial role, but there is one more factor, right? And this is not the glorious stuff, which sure. is the frustration and the anger that comes out of... Uh... Tell us more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, I, I we're, we're, this... we're digging deep into this, man. <laughs> I want to hear, hear how this happened, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like, I feel like 
a lot of people don't talk about this, but then when you when you ask, people are so all willing to share stories of like, oh, I can tell you all about that right. stuff. Right, so many stories. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So I think I think um, uh, I came up with that idea. The rosy side of it is like, oh, you actually worked for a big company and you came up with this idea and they gave you the environment to uh, run with it, yeah. right? Um, but then what happened afterwards, right? At the end of those six months, I toiled and I put so much of effort and uh, I had to hand it off to sales and marketing to handle the next part, Yeah. right? And I was a little apprehensive, right? Because I'd like developed, I mean, it was like my baby, the idea, right? right? And um, uh, marketing and sales, they do their stuff well, uh, but it so happened that um, they felt when they tested it out, there wasn't too much interest from the customer, right? So things were charging along a little slowly. And every time I'd ask for an update or like I tried to bring up that topic, the point would always be like, oh, this stuff takes a lot of time and it goes to the customer. We can't really control it. All we can hope for is to put it in front of them and hope that they will use it and you know yeah. give it time and then ask for it, right? But at that point of time, I mean, I felt it could have been done in so many better ways. So that was that frustration point, right? What my manager or my entire team said was, oh no, that's okay, don't worry about it. You've done a great job. That's what we need to do. And there was this frustration. In hindsight, I realized what that was is basically, in a lot of big companies, the way things are designed is you divide up the work into little, little, little chunks and you give it to the specialists. Yeah, right? the best people at each part. The best people in each part. Yeah. So um, it's great if you want to you know, kind of do really well in this one narrow thing. Uh, but that structure doesn't work so well when you want to crisscross across uh, divisions or across roles, which is what creating new things. It's kind of like a startup mindset, right? Big yeah. companies don't have the startup mindset, right? So I think that frustration made me feel like, you know what, this is it. Like, this is the last time I want, I'm going to work on yet another product idea that eventually kind of doesn't see light of day simply because you know, nobody has a clear answer. Like, oh, we tried, but, you know, we had budget cuts or the client had other priorities and things like that. So that opened up this opportunity towards entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial space. So this was the entrepreneurial phase of my life. And I was like, hey, it makes a lot of sense to do something entrepreneurial. I think this is the reason people do entrepreneurial things. You're like, hey, I have an idea. Nobody else understands it, but then I can see this market for it. And if we execute it the right way, we can focus on it. Yeah. Right. So that was there. Um, and there was also around the time I think Airbnb and uh, Tinder had had like become widely popular. Yeah. And for me, the question was always, yes, they're widely popular. Why are they widely popular? And everybody would say, oh, isn't it obvious? Like it serves this unmet need and things like that. But for me, that was like, I don't think that's an answer. Because for me, it's like, I'm sure there have been many other apps that, that did something very similar in the past. What did these guys do differently that kind of helped them fight all of the crowd and come up on top? So... The combination of these things, the frustration, these thoughts, and having already done product managerial things uh, within the company uh, gave me this, that, that final last push to saying, you know what, I'm gonna go do something outside the company. Uh, but the challenge was I'm a very risk-averse person. Right? I think it, it's because traditionally I come from more of an academic or limited means family, so um, we don't have too many entrepreneurs in my family or when I grew up. So I will constantly come up with tons and tons of ideas, but when it comes to kind of like quitting and putting your life savings on it, it's really hard <laughs> for me to make that leap. Right. So what I did at that point of time was I thought I'll do the next best thing. So um, I started finding startups that are working on ideas that are similar to what I like to do. And I thought I'll get the secondhand experience. If I work for a company that's small and if I'm able to uh, target it right, 
I can kind of get a secondhand entrepreneurial experience. Right. Right. So you're pretty much an entrepreneur because you're in that environment. Yes. You have a feel for what it's like. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so with that in mind, I started interviewing with um, all these startup jobs that I could find. Right. And it worked out much better than I anticipated because um, I ended up uh, finding this company whose products I had been using already. They had this app. Uh, it was a restaurant ordering app. And they were li- really ahead of the times because it was like 2013, 2012, yeah. 2013. And uh, I think I had interacted with their product team in the past because they reached out for some feedback because I was a customer. And uh, I had spoken to their designers and their founder at some point of time. Yeah. Uh, so I had this conversation going. And... Uh, they pivoted. So when they pivoted and they were like, hey, we're starting fresh, this idea didn't work out, we're, we're thinking, you know, like, where do we go from here? Right. I was like, oh my God, this is a great, this is like the perfect opportunity. And I chatted up the founder and um, we decided that we had a lot of common areas of interest. And some of the problems that he wanted to address as a future step for the new version of the company was very much aligned with what I wanted to do. So that was my foray into joining Nanolocal Technologies, right? So when I essentially joined Nanolocal Technologies, I was like employee number five. So there was just the founder and he had uh, three of his engineers because they'd been working on a previous uh, startup venture. Yeah. So that essentially was how, you know, I went into the, okay, so I will be this person who supports everything the engineering team can do, right? And when we started, we hadn't launched the product as yet, right? Uh, what we eventually, what I helped kind of conceptualize and launch was this app called Bounty. Bounty was a location-based loyalty rewards app, kind of similar to Foursquare. Okay, yeah, it sounds like a Foursquare-ish yeah. thing. Maybe. Yeah, and not so relevant now, right? But back then, 2013... Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, so we started off with that idea, and it helped that I got in on the ground floor, so to speak, because uh, um, the first few months it was simply about we don't have users, so do whatever the <laughs> hell it takes to get users, Yep. right? So although my title was a product specialist, um, in reality, for a startup, it's too big a word to even use the term marketing. All you're doing is like grassroots right. uh, download growth. Yeah, users by any means necessary, exactly. basically. Exactly. <laughs> right. And uh, I, lear- I learned, I think, I think the following two years that I spent over there, I learned, dare I say, as much as I had learned in three years of working in a big company or four or five years of working in a big company because I was wearing different hats every couple of months, right? Um, In a sense, I was growing as the company and the product was growing. When I started off, my job was just to get downloads, right? Um, And then three months in, I was able to do it right and figure out how to get it done. So I was doing a lot of grassroots campaigning and we started to see an uptick. So we kind of grew to about 10,000 users and that was like awesome. But then we start pitching to investors and pitching to um, uh, vendors out there. And everybody was like, 10,000, yeah, not that. In, I mean, it's good, but, you know, call me when you have 50,000, right? Just just a figurative number of people. Right, 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 right. So the realization was that 10,000 doesn't really count. We need to kind of get to the next level. And <clears throat> I spent the next three months doing the same thing, right? But by this point of time, I had experience with what the product was. I knew what I was doing. So I hired two specialists, uh, data analysts who would kind of go through the data and kind of give me insights on how to inform our marketing campaigns. And um, essentially, that's how I started growing the team. And at the end of four or five months, uh, you know, my, the founder of the company was like, oh, yeah, he's the head of our marketing division. And that's essentially how I got my title. That's how. Yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just needed more people to help do the things you're working on anyways. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I have to dig in more of that because I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I have a 
the last two and a half years I was in digital marketing, uh, like car toys. So I, I have that digital marketing type of experience. But I'm curious with growth to get to those 10,000 users. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things you guys were doing? Like implementing, you know? Or what were some of the most successful things you were doing that helped you get to those uptick in users? Yeah, it... At, um, to begin with, I would say it, it goes back to what you said, right? Anything necessary, yeah. right? Uh, right from little hacks like sponsoring college events and hoping that would mean we'd get our downloads right. to being more targeted and saying, hey, this is our customer demographic. The ideal person is someone who's 21 years old, has earning capacity of X. Where do we find people like that, right? Um, eventually, what really worked and what I was able to kind of hone in on and start scaling as a mechanism was... Um, going to those places where a lot of our ideal customer demographic congregated and um, using referrals as a mean to grow. Uh, so let me explain there, right? Uh, we identified that our ideal customer was a typical IT industry worker in India. So these are people who are in their early 20s, uh, highly educated, have a lot of disposable income, and have a tendency to kind of go out and eat quite often. That was important because we were basically a location-based rewards app yeah. which rewarded you for visiting our partner establishments. We started off with the restaurant space because it is easy to prove the concept. Yeah. So it can be a cafe or a restaurant here, right? The pitch, the value proposition to Bounty's users was um, download this app that just gives you rewards for doing something you're already doing anyways. Right, just extra bonus, basically. Yeah, so picture that you know typical day in your life. You go to morning, in the morning, you kind of go grab your coffee at Starbucks. So you can get 10 reward points for just going to Starbucks. Right, and then you go for lunch at a deli near your workplace or wherever it is that you go. If they happen to be our partner establishment, you don't have to do anything. We had a nifty engineering team, so they managed to create intellectual property that cool technology, which uh, made it frictionless, which meant how do you get the reward points? You don't have to open your phone, take a snap of the bill. You don't have to give your cell phone number or anything. It was location-based. So we had artificial intelligence that would be able to identify that you're within a geofence that we had created of our partner establishment. Right. Right. So you're just, from a customer's perspective, you're just walking into a restaurant, doing your thing and getting out, and then you get this notification. Yeah. And, you know, you're saying, your phone is saying, congratulations, here's 10 points from Bounty App because you visited a partner establishment. Right. Right. And obviously it was smart enough to differentiate between people who actually paid versus people who were just passing by the mall. Or, yeah, happened to be close. Yeah. Okay. That right. type of thing. Yeah, so so let's, I mean, so this friction-free approach, right? This is very important because there was a lot of research that I did talking to initial customers trying to understand that space. We started off with the idea that, hey, we want to improve the loyalty rewards landscape, right? And in India at that point of time, there was a lot of interest about loyalty rewards, but people had a lot of pain points. So I did tons and tons of customer interviews. And since we were a startup, it's worth mentioning that this wasn't like formal focus group studies, Yeah. right? I didn't have that training. Yeah. Um, and we didn't even have a budget to be able to hire a specialist to go be able to do that. This was just based off of, oh, these 100 users that we've downloaded, let's try to see the 10 people who are using it quite often. We'll send them a message or an email saying, hey, do you have time to talk? We're really curious to understand why you've been using our app and what you like about it. Yeah. Right? So it started off with kind of listening to like two or three customers and then, you know, like, after you talk to four or five, you have an understanding of like, among the five features that we've put out there, what is that one feature that they liked a lot? And then we double down on that feature and expand on it. And then we keep doing this, I kept doing these experiments again and again, week after week after week. And eventually we came to that realization of who's our ideal customer, right? Now that we knew that our ideal customer was the typical software industry employee, then 
logically the next challenge became slightly more straightforward like oh so where do they hang out how do we target them right right so in in india you have this concept of tech parks or it parks um which is essentially a cluster of office buildings within a gated campus environment okay and each floor is going to be or multiple floors are going to be controlled by one office so essentially right. you have this campus environment where there's a multitude of companies so there's a huge concentration of our perfect customer type in one area in one area yeah right so uh okay so the obvious step was we're going to go to the commissaries and the cafeterias over there kind of like buy some stall space and convince people to download our app yeah. right but then when we actually went and did that we realized it wasn't kind of moving the download needle so you know doing a lot of research there trying to understand what was going on and when i say again research trying to understand you need to understand you need to realize that this was again a startup it was startup. me and two other people right so a lot of my research was just standing there at the stalls right next to my campaigning specialists and you know trying to understand when the customers eyes would light up which part of the pitch would make their eyes light up versus which part of the pitch made them go like i'm sorry i don't have time and they walk away yeah right so a lot of that's what i mean by grassroots right spending a lot of time over there trying to understand and realizing that hey wait a minute so it turns out um people really love the idea of referral points right? right so we essentially tweak the referral program into making it such that uh there's no limit on how many people you can refer and all you have to do is refer more people to get reward points okay right and super simple super simple right which is important yeah and it grew like wildfire all we needed to kind of kind of like fuel it a little bit more was going to those places and going to the right places where we had those customers and we had all these like those were places where i learned to innovate um in in a, in an environment simply because of desperation what i mean is uh let's go back to the budget challenge right i had like a severely limited budget when it came to marketing i couldn't afford to um essentially give up stall space so in these uh tech company or these tech parks that i was telling you about it seemed like an easy win to kind of just acquire stall space rent stall space floor space that's what stall space means yeah. in india uh rent floor space and do that pitch for a day but what the cafeteria establishments were asking for for that one day's worth of rent was too much we didn't even have it like it was like one month of my marketing budget <laughs> right so how do you circumvent that problem now we so eventually what what i was able to kind of devise as a hack was um finding people who were working in at least one of the companies in that tech park and going into the pantry areas of those tech parks right and saying hey so uh, the reason those companies would allow us in their pantry area was we offered something for them we said you have i'm sure you have an employee rewards program you run it through our app right and our and our app is free to use all we need is for your employees to do is to kind of download it and refer their friends right right so essentially all i needed was talking to one person in one company and doing that you know kind of like standing in their pantry space for two <laughs> days or three days and you know we knew how to entice them to start using the app uh activate them of sorts and once they were activated uh they had the referral mechanism to kind of add all their buddies on the floor yeah and that's essentially how we kind of conquered the challenge yeah but the point was a lot of this took sitting over there spending days together hanging around with customers and listening yeah. to them in so many ways Yeah, I think that's really important for anyone especially in product management or thinking about that type of thing and marketing and growth whatever. It goes back to, I don't know if you listen to Masters of Scale podcast with uh, Reed Hoffman, but oh, my favorite. Yeah, it's so good, isn't it? Like one of the things like uh, Airbnb guys, like doing things that don't scale. Like I I think one of the things that they they were in in Y Combinator, I believe, and they 
they were they were like they had some growth or whatever they were kind of like stalling or whatever it was and they ended up going like flying out to where their customers were where their best customers in like New York City or something I think mm-hmm. they were in San Francisco mm-hmm. and going out there and actually talking with them and staying with them and like pretending to like be like oh we're taking pictures for this but to just to talk to them to get that customer research and everyone wants to like look at the data and numbers and all this sort of thing but talking to your customers the actual best customers to get an idea of what your business is or what the best parts are i think it's like a forgotten thing but like it takes some effort on that part but to your point like that's the way to do it you figure out exactly what features are the best you figure out which things you should be doing because these are real people that are actually using it yep. sometimes hard to see the data if you especially if you don't have enough early on yeah yeah and see that was another challenge right when when you just have like a few couple of hundred or thousand users right that is the data it's like <laughs> do we even have enough data is this statistically significant <laughs> it's like <I> don't know. <laughs> it's like can we use this data or not like <laughs> that's such a business school term right because <laughs> we were just talking about this recently and like yeah that's why it's yeah. on my mind but so you see so you have that company for two years yeah and yeah. you obviously going to growth the first year or so whatever but moving into that second year like, like towards the end i guess of that like mm-hmm. how did business school fit into your plans or how did you know you didn't want to stay at the startup necessarily Um I think that wasn't too difficult to realize because what I realized was while I was learning a lot in the startup I was only learning things that were important to the company at that point of time right uh, in so many ways I like how entrepreneurs make the analogy of comparing their startups to a baby right uh, I I don't have kids <laughs> myself but my sister and my sister has a son he's my nephew and I'm closely involved with my sister and brother-in-law so i constantly see how much of effort raising a baby is demands yeah. and that's essentially what happens even for a startup right you're doing what the product needs at that point of time right and uh, that's great if you're the entrepreneur but what i realized was there were so many other things that i wasn't learning and i would learn them only when the company got to 4 years or 1 million users right, right. Um, so an example would be strategic things right like uh, we would have free to use app uh, but when we would pitch to our investors at some point of time uh, oh no when we would pitch to our investors a constant theme uh, of the question they would ask us was uh, uh, what's your plan for revenue right and we would say it's freemium which means we're going to have a tiered uh, hierarchy of users and there's going to be paying users and free users and the question is at what point of time do you want to turn that tap on and start charging right do you want to do it when you have half a million users do you want to do it at the end of 3 years what is that milestone yeah and those are like tough questions we were like oh those are like really good questions right and you don't want to say oh we'll we'll deal with it when we get there so all those realizations made me acknowledge that while i'm learning a lot by doing it helps to learn in a more structured format and that was pretty much the answer for why I should go to business school yeah you you were seeking that sort of structure well let's, let's just go through this step by step and that was kind of what you wanted at that point in time at least yep yeah okay because you had been through i mean obviously you had the experience at a big company in cisco yeah you had the experience at a startup already very different experience oh yeah yeah and then you're back to like okay well i want the structure of let's move forward with this yeah yeah definitely was and i feel like the startup phase of my life was just um confirming that theory that i had that hey i want to go entrepreneurial but then many times in life things seem shiny from a distance when you go nearby you're like oh okay it turns out this is just a three month thing or a one year thing right? yeah so yeah so i think i think at uh, at the end of that journey i think it was 
what was the sign that I was coming to the end of that journey was I realized that, hey, what all I started off wanting to learn, I'm able to hit those check marks. Yeah. Right. And now what I want to do next, this place isn't the right platform for me. So we already know it's, it's clearly a challenge to get into any business school, and especially coming from international, going into the United States. But you got into US, you went to USC, obviously. Did you know right away your first months or whatever in USC exactly what you wanted to do in terms of career-wise? Or did you kind of have some ideas and not sure? Like, um, I, To some extent, I did. Okay. Um, there was a little bit of refinement involved, but... Um, I guess mine is a unique case in that uh, since you are an MBA student now, you'll, you'll be able to relate to this. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of the crowd that comes for an MBA program are career switchers, which means yep. um, when they join business school, they're looking more towards the new opportunities. They want to do anything but what they were doing in the past. <laughs> right. I guess I was one of those few people who was clear that I know what I want to do. I want to do product management. And this experiment for the past two years of working in the startup has made it clear and tells me that I want to do product management in the context of consumer-focused companies, as opposed to uh, when I worked for Cisco, I was enterprise-focused. Yeah, right? different. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to be a consumer-focused PM. Um, although the first two months, I think that FOMO hit me like it hits anybody else. And I was like, uh, am I sure I don't want to be a consultant? Am I sure <laughs> I don't want to go into investment banking? I'm almost certain, but I just want to make sure I'm not self-selecting. Yeah. So there was that that little phase where I kind of worked with the consulting club or I attended their meetings to to kind of check what is the allure of this? Do I actually like this or not? Yeah. So, I mean, it's very real in business school that you see all these different things going on. You're like, wait, wait, wait. What about that? What about that career? Right? Well, that career looks great. Oh, this person's recruiting for that. Tell me more about that. And you hear, <laughs> you hear like one thing and then you're just like, oh, maybe I could do that too. And it's very easy to get sidetracked I guess I guess for in your case even if you already knew going into business school what you wanted to do and you yeah. still which I think it's not it's not a horrible thing because you're in an environment where things are happening so it's like this is an exploratory time so in that way it's like it's fine like okay let's, let's look at other things at least but to that point you ended up at Dollar Shave Club and product management for the summer but how did that recruiting go did you when did you secure that internship even like how far into the process um, Do you remember? Okay, Dollar Shave Club. I think, I think one month, one and a half months after I started recruiting for okay. internships, um, was how I ended up getting through with Dollar Shave Club. Okay, and um, uh, that I think that corresponds with second semester. Uh, January is when we all typically start off on the hunt. Okay, and Dollar Shave Club kind of popped up around uh, mid February or in February. How did that? How'd that come about? Did you like find them somewhere? Like, was there someone that was recruiting? I, I was well aware of Dollar Shave Club. In fact, when I was working at Nano Local and when I was creating those marketing campaigns, yeah. um, Dollar Shave Club served as an inspiration at different points of time, right? Uh, so I had a lot of respect for Mike Dubin, the founder of the company, and what they had done. Yeah. And uh, uh, like I said, I kind of spent a lot of time analyzing at a deep level what were their origin stories, right? The first six months, what did they do? How did they catapult from just a couple of hundred customers to several thousand that you can't even handle. Um, so they were there at the back of my mind. I was very well aware of them. And um, when I started applying for product management positions for internships, they they had, they had were at the intersection of all the things I was looking for, right? I was looking for a product management position for a consumer-focused digital company, and they were a digital native company. 
And it was a very interesting time to join them because they had what I would call the best of both worlds. They were a company of few people. Like they had like, I mean, of course, few is a relative definition. They had like 200, 200 people yeah. when I joined them, right? You worked at Cisco, so few is... Yes, exactly. <laughs> when I worked at Cisco, it was like, yeah. Yeah, I get it. So, so few, okay. Yeah, like Nano Local, I think our team, I started off as five people and the biggest we grew to was 43, 44 com- people in the company. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, hey, um, Dollar Shave Club, there were just 200 people and yet they had access to a lot of capital, right? They had just been acquired for a billion dollars by Unilever. So you have this ideal situation of uh, few people and a lot of money and a lot of recognition. And you have this huge customer base to run experiments with, right? That's, that's like an equally important thing in the digital space you realize that um, it's a big, big plus when you're a company with a million users because you can do A-B testing. There's so much you can do. There's so much data that you can gather to inform Numbers your strategy. Forward. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was uh, the combination of those things made me apply with Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. And um, it helped that I had such a detailed awareness of their product because when we went through the interview rounds, they were asking me a lot of these questions that made it clear that they wanted someone who had hands-on experience and I was able to actually deal with it, right? In hindsight, I think my manager said, hey, you were up against some good competition, but the reason we went ahead with you was because uh, you were different from all the other candidates we interviewed in that you were ready to go. You had all these ideas. And when we asked you about whether you've used the app or not, you were like, yes, I've used that. This is what we need to do. This is what I think we need to fix and change and all of that stuff. So you were very well prepared yes. for that. Yes, I would say that. You used it, you knew it intimately, essentially. You knew it very well. Yeah, and that's the funny thing, right? This is something I've realized in hindsight by sharing with other people, that many people don't do this. Um, like, I prepare a lot when I before I go to for a product management review. Like, what I, uh, using the app or the website or buying a product or engaging as a customer of that product is table stakes for me. Um, a lot of people don't do that. I think the reason why I picked up that habit was Back when I was working for Nano Local Tech and I would hire people, I was on the other side, right? And I would ask them to start off with like, oh, have you had a chance to use our app? And I was surprised at how many people would say, I have not, right? Because I would be like, okay, <laughs> how, do I, how do I gauge your enthusiasm to kind of work here if you haven't even used our product or not visited our website and things like that? Yeah, right? doesn't leave a good impression. Yeah, so... So that really helped. It helped that I had that experience to draw from. Right. So every every company I interviewed for, I made sure that I had at least taken a look at their website to understand what it's about. And I had some kind of, I could relate to either their customers or their product, or I was excited about the space they were trying to address. I mean, what other companies were you looking at for internships besides Dollar Shave Club? Um, I know you're in top companies, maybe. Yeah, I think um, I interviewed with Google, um, who else? Man, it's so long ago. Yeah. Um, you had Dollar Shave Club. It was a good company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, Airbnb. Okay. Uh, you had an interview with them? Oh, yeah. I got through with them. So I had to kind of decide between Airbnb and Dollar Shave Club. And Wait, so you, so you had an offer for an internship for yeah. Airbnb? Yeah. Was it that Dollar Shave Club just more aligned with that? Yes. I felt like product? Dollar Shave Club offered exactly what I wanted. With okay. Airbnb, it was a hybrid role. And uh, they said it's going to be a combination of, after I got the offer, I asked them more questions, and they said it's going to be a combination of uh, um, strategy and operations and marketing and okay. product management. And um, that seems like a great title to have in terms of the number of buzzwords in it. Lots of buzzwords. Right? Tons of buzzwords. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, when I compared that against Dollar Shave Club, it was pretty straightforward, right? It was product management 
and I'd met the entire team that I would be working with versus Airbnb such a big company yeah right so I felt I felt the role with Airbnb was going to be more marketing focused um, but the one with Dollar Shave Club was going to be more product management focused okay which is I mean that's ultimately what you wanted so that makes a lot of sense I have to ask though because I know there's people in my class who've mentioned Airbnb what for both companies I guess what was that interview process like in terms of the duration of the process like how many interviews was it like I don't know if you could speak a little bit on that because obviously a lot of people in MBAs are thinking about internships and these are some good companies like yeah yeah do, do you remember like how long that process was or anything uh, I think for the most part let's let's try it. with Dollar Shave Club it's more easy to recollect right? okay yeah. um, it started off with uh, an initial phone interview okay with uh, a recruiter and um um, it was pretty straightforward except for a few curveballs. Um, it was clear they were trying to gauge if I would be a good fit for their culture. Now, I know that's a term that's thrown around. Everyone wants people who are a good fit for the culture of their company. I would think it's so much more important in a small company environment like Dollar Shave Club, right? So the recruiter clearly, I felt a strong reason why he picked up my resume is because I'd worked for a startup myself, right? So a lot of the questions were around, you know, how do you deal with this environment? And as one person having worked in a startup to another, it was clear that he was gauging that part of my skill set or that part of my experience, right? After that, it went on to another phone round with a, uh, I think the VP, uh, the VP of product at the company. So we had a conversation. His questions were super broad range and more like the fun, exciting stuff, right? Uh, but then the fun, exciting stuff is where you can get tripped up. So yeah, that happened. I think after that, they were confident and they said, okay, fine, we're going to come on site with us. And on-site was a thoroughly exhausting day. I think it was like a good three to four hours. Woo! Yeah, because I think they had they had me talk to four of their product managers, and that was pretty much their entire product team. Okay. Right. So basically talk to, talk to our whole product team, basically. Yes, and each one of them interviewed me like 30 minutes. And uh, um, I think in some of the cases, the interviews were very specific. Like one of the product managers kind of pulled out the Dollar Shave Club app on her phone we were, we were talking and she was like asking, okay, what do you think of the app? And I was like, oh yeah, I love it. Um, and she's like, okay, is there anything you would improve? I said, yes, we would probably do this thing. And she actually takes out the app from her phone and she's like, can you show me? What? <laughs> and I'm like, oh wow, okay. Oh I my mean, God. thank goodness that I actually went through the app the past few days, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Man. I think over there, it definitely helped. I think at some point of time with one of the product managers, he asked me at some point of time, he's like, oh, so you've actually ordered and have you subscribed to Dollar Shave products? I said, yes, yes, I did that in anticipation of the interview because I was like, I need to actually go through the whole process to understand what it's about. And right. he's like, okay, that's good. I like that. Wait, wait, wait. So did you shave a Dollar Shave Cup before? <laughs> did, did before the interview? Because <laughs> that, that always seems like that seems fitting, right? Um, yeah, you know, you know that's, that's, that's the joke. That's the most popular joke I've of heard. Course. Whenever people... Yeah, I think all of my friends were like, oh, Dollar Shave Club? Oh, did you have to shave to get... <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I can't help it. Have yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's completely understandable. Oh, no, my. I think that was the one thing I didn't do. <laughs> the one thing you did not do. Well, clearly you got the internship, so... Yeah. It worked out. Yeah, So was did. that the last thing, or was there more after those four um, product team members? No, the, the on-site day was the final one. Again, um, after I spoke with all the product managers, I interviewed with the VP as well. Okay. Right. Um, he was the VP of, uh, again, the VP of products over there. And then after that, they gave me the uh, offer. Okay. Yeah. And then do you remember much about the Airbnb one, the process for that? Um, yes, it was pretty straightforward. It wasn't in, the challenge wasn't in the number of runs. Uh, okay. Airbnb was more about, I was interviewed by a recruiter first and then a product manager. 
and then they put me through a tech round, which was super surprising. So many companies claim to say, hey, we need someone who has tech chops. Tech chops can be, you need to know how to use SQL or one level detail saying, one level deeper saying, we need you to know how to code, right? right? With Air, a lot of companies say that Airbnb was the only one that actually tested my uh, tech skills. Really? Uh, yeah, they kind of made me do some SQL queries, uh, SQL. Well, yeah, 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 more, the database stuff. Yeah, right? the yeah. database stuff. So they made you do that in the third third round, I guess that would be? Yes, the third round. Like, how extensive was that? It was minimal. minimal. I mean, for someone who knows SQL, it's pretty vanilla stuff. Did you did you kind of expect that, or was that like pretty like surprising? So, yeah, I'd been evaluating up until that point. I had interviewed with so many other companies yeah. uh, that are clearly in the technical product manager space, but nobody actually... Uh, <laughs> like put me through the yeah yeah um, Uber is well known for doing that so when I interviewed with Uber um, they made me do some stuff real time during the interview but again it was just back of the envelope math kind of stuff okay right a little bit sim- simpler type of thing yeah I think I think it was just to do with the nature of the role so that's the thing about interviewing with big companies right it's so difficult to answer the question of uh, hey is this going to be the same experience I get right like I've yeah. spoken to people who have interviewed with whatever company I interviewed with and they would give me a description of the process. And then it would so happen that there would be a wild mismatch between what I'd heard and what I ended up going through. Yeah. And a common explanation for that is because they interviewed with Division X, you interview with Division Y, each has different needs, each has its own little process. Yeah. Companies within companies, almost, yeah. too. It, seemed, yeah. it would seem like that. Yep. So so, the, so you had that, that technical part of the Airbnb interview. Was there more? So what was after that? Was there more to it then? Yeah, so, after that, they inter- there was another product manager who interviewed me. So in those four rounds, is it like a couple of weeks then? Or like in the course of like a week Airbnb or two? Airbnb moved pretty fast. Airbnb and Uber moved really, really fast. Okay. Most other companies, yeah. It would take them, it would stretch out to like three or four weeks, the I've, whole process. I've, I've heard stories. Uh, this, now, I guess this is for a summer internship, so it's different. But for like people trying to get into those actual companies and work for them, I've heard that it can be a very, very long process. Like it can. Months. Yes. God, that is yeah. nuts. Yeah. I don't know how... Jeez, why do you think that is? You, you have way more experience, I'm sure, in that type of thing. Why do you think that is? You know, I've been on the other side, unfortunately, working for companies where I would intentionally delay it. Not not with malintent. It's just environments or factors that you don't control. Okay. Right? Like, I've worked in companies where we open up a requisition and we start interviewing candidates, but midway through, someone high up in the chain says... No, let's put a pause. Uh, we just got change of direction or change of strategic direction, so we're gonna do a freeze on the budget or let's be more frugal. Why do we need three people? Can we can we roll that all into like one hire, right? So at that point of time, there's going to be a conversation, um, and you know, like people are gonna get together inside the company and debate about whether that's necessary or not. But while all of that is happening, out of good intent towards the candidate, you don't want to put the candidate or string them along. Right, so you go through that period of like, I don't have good news for you, so I want to respond back to your email requests. If you're a candidate asking, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Right. Uh, that's that's what I've personally experienced myself. Right. But that still doesn't make it any easier when you actually go through it as a candidate. It's such a pain. Going through the recruiting process in business school, I was exposed to that in ways that I never had in the past. Right. Because when you when you're in business school, the number of interviews you go through, the number of companies you apply for, is so much more than you ever would in any other phase of your career. Right. So yeah, I realized that, that I, I don't know, I feel like that's also a very, uh, a space prime for disruption with startups, right? That's like a problem. The hiring process? Yeah, the hiring process. Ooh. Dying to be solved. What, what do you think they should do to solve it? 
Any, um, any ideas or something that would help streamline streamline that process? I think I think some kind of accountability where the company also is accountable. Okay. So so you're kind of changing this from a one-way process to a two-way process where the company has enough skin in the game in terms of uh, if, if you're able to somehow expose that metric of how long it takes a company to hire people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, can you make that more transparent? Like now there are indirect ways for you to find out, right? So uh, I've seen some of my smarter friends who I learned from to do this, right? They do a lot of in-depth research about companies before they start hiring. Yeah. So if it's a case where you're like, hey, I'm fine. I w- ideally, I would want to go work for company X, but then I know there's company Y and Z in that space, so they're all replaceable. I'm fine with working with them. You do the initial step of checking if there's any red flags in terms of a slow hiring process. Yeah. And if there is a slow hiring process, you don't even bother applying with X, so you don't like hedge your bets on them. You apply, but you focus more on Y and Z who are well-known to fast-track the process. Right. That is starting to happen, but that's something that only the highly savvy folks in the market or the industry are able to do now. Yeah. Can a startup come into that space and kind of publicize those metrics, make it more easily accessible? Right? Well, yeah, and it seems like, and to that point, like with with the competition for talent amongst these top companies, where like, to your point, yeah, people, oh, these are these are comparable companies. What's stopping me from going Google versus Facebook versus wherever? Like, you know, like what separates one company from another? It could be that startup coming in and displaying. They take six months to hire people. They take two months. They're pretty similar companies. Which one do you want to work at? Like, yeah, I guess maybe that would be helpful yep. in that space. Yep. And, and obviously, we're doing an oversimplification. Yeah, here. Right. clearly, clearly. Yeah. But it's because it's a thought experiment. Right? Yeah, I'm sure you're going to have to work out so many more challenges over there. But essentially, this sounds a lot like what Uber managed to do for the taxi industry with the rating system. Yeah. Right. Change the game. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> no, so, right. So, so Tower Shape Club, though, I just want to hear a little bit about that experience before we kind of move on to getting into Disney. Sure. Um, you were there for three months, summer internship. Did they have a pretty clear, like, I guess they're a smaller company. Have they had a lot of cohorts of inter- interns already in summer? No. So that was that was one unique thing there, okay. and that was one of the lessons I learned. I was the only product manager intern. Okay, the only one there. Right? It was a small product team. So they just had four product managers right. and two VPs. So it was just like five people, six people in the product team. And when you look at that number, the proportion of how many interns you'd want is probably... <laughs> You're not going to hire that many, yeah. Yeah. So there were other interns, right? So we had uh, engineering interns in the operations team and data scientist interns, but um, I was the only product management intern. That has its own advantages and disadvantages, right? And now we're... All, all this while I spoke about the advantage of an environment like Dollar Shave Club. The disadvantage, I feel, especially if you're early on in your product management career, is to work for a company where there's enough and more product managers because learning by seeing or observing is a huge part of how we learn, especially in the workplace. What I mean by that is um, it's so much easier for you to do a better job if you have a senior version of your role who you can shadow or emulate in that. Right. Right. Um, And then you have more breathing space if it's a big company because you're given relatively smaller responsibilities. Yeah. Right. But when you're working in a startup, it can kind of be a little chaotic. Right. And... Uh, the number of things that's given to you or on you is way more, right? It helped that I had prior product management experience when I went into Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. But I can't stop to think about how much harder it would have been <laughs> if I was just a newbie product manager for the first time going in over there. Yeah. You have you already had experience before, so it's a totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that that helped you in your experience. That what was the day to day like as an intern at Dollar Shave Club? What types of things did you work on? Like, you know, how's your day go from one day to the next as an intern? Like, 
um, the I think the first few weeks was was so challenging because you're you're like this new <laughs> new entrant to the company and there's so much to catch up on. Yeah, and uh, it's a typical startup in that the concept of documentation is not very prevalent. Yeah, so there's a lot of information that you have to assemble yourself, versus say if you have come from a big corporation environment. It's very easy for someone to point you to the wiki page in the company for a particular product or a particular team. Right. Right. It's very easy for you to the onboarding processes. I wouldn't say easy. It's more straightforward. That makes it less painful. Right. Yeah. So the first few weeks was a lot of me establishing relationships with people within the company, and that was a very good piece of advice I'd been given in business school in one of the classes, which was um, when you use your internship, those three months there is just an introductory thing. Don't focus on trying to deliver. It. I mean. Try to deliver, be as hardworking as possible, and deliver right. impact. But don't focus on making that your primary uh, objective. Your primary objective should be more about using those three months to building more relationships with people in the company, uh, preferably people more in the leadership positions. Because if you can do that, um, there's a good chance that they're going to move to another place one year down the line. And before you know it, you actually have a network that spans multiple companies, right? So I would try to set up as many lunches as I could with all the senior leadership in the company at the point of time. And I had a manager who was a senior product manager over there. She was an excellent resource too. So she didn't have any business school training, but her advice too was on similar lines. She said, Amitesh, a lot of your, I mean, she didn't she didn't have to say this, like product <laughs> management work is more about collaborating with people across divisions, right? right? So she would say, hey, here's a list of people, go and talk to each one of them, right? And when I was given one of my first few projects, um, Obviously, it was a new space for me. So the way I was combating the the challenge was to um, have cross-functional brainstorms. So I invited people from across divisions, not just from the product team, right. from marketing, from acquisition, from customer service, and all those people, right? So essentially, we had this meeting of like people from nine different divisions. And to a large extent, that helped because my manager kind of gave me the list and she said, you know, hey, here's <laughs> a list of people that you might want to add to your meeting, right? And then I, I started adding on more people to that. And surprisingly, you know, like at one point of time when I was sending out that invite, I was like, well, people even come, they don't even know who I am. Surprisingly, people love to come and share their thought process within the company. Great. Right. So it was this really successful brainstorm. In 30 minutes, I managed to power through so many questions and challenges because we had people from across the divisions chiming in and talking about, oh, this idea will work really well because I have in our team, we constantly face uh, customer complaints and the biggest complaint is to do with this topic you're dealing with. Right. And that was just that one example. So you get to do that within that company. Is that like, was that a few weeks in? Was that towards the end of it? Like, I think my memory is a little hazy, but I think like okay. maybe by week two or three, you are, I set up this meeting. doing some of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What were some of the top lessons, takeaways from that experience? Even as one or two things you had, like what did you enjoy most, I guess, about being there for the summer or learning the most? Um, I think I think one of the biggest lessons is uh, uh, focusing a lot on uh, the targets that you're given and trying to understand uh, the drivers for it. Where is this coming from? Is this coming from a strategic direction for the company or is this coming from an immediate need of your team, mm-hmm. right? Your management and your team needs this solved. Right. That helps a lot because it helps you automatically prioritize. A lot of product management is prioritization. What that essentially means is... Uh, if you really want to do work and if you turn around and if you say, hey, give me work, there's like a list of 10,000 requests that you're going to get. <laughs> How do you pick and choose among those? Because you have just one engineering team, you have only one design team, and they're already strapped for time, right? So 
kind of listening carefully when my manager gave me my priorities or gave me the projects to focus on, um, and then filling out the gaps in those instructions, right? What I mean by that is, when you get instructions from your managers or your boss, your VP, whoever it is, it's not gonna be prescriptive, at least in these roles, in roles like these. It's not gonna be prescriptive like, oh, you know, this is exactly what we need to do, can you please go take care of it, right? They're gonna kind of give you what feels like a semi-vision piece. And it's up to you to kind of go figure out what exactly does that mean, what's the best way, what's the best alternative, or among the three options I have, which one do I pick to execute on this? So in all, to fill out all those nebulous, that nebulous space, um, understanding what is driving those requirements helps right. a lot. Yeah, like why are they actually asking you? Is it a matter of this has to be done in two weeks or whatever, so like we have to get this done now? This is a future thing we're working on that's building towards something else, the difference between them. Exactly. Yeah, that makes right. sense. Yeah. So you had that internship, and then did you have a pretty clear idea of not wanting to come back there after the summer? I mean, what were you thinking, or like, was there an offer to even to come back after? Um, I think a good part of it had to do with uh, what I said earlier about the size of the product team. Yeah. Right. That was a little limiting. Yeah. Only right. four or five product managers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were all really smart people, but then I felt like uh, the burden on me would be a lot more if I continued over there. Yeah. Right. Um, that was one part. Another part was also that. Uh, um, at that point of time, they, sponsor, they stopped sponsoring internationals. Oh, did they? Yeah, so ah, that's was like a great thing for you. Yeah. Yes, right? like, I think towards the end of my internship, my manager called me in and she was like, I'm really sorry, but the Unilever has clamped down and we've frozen all uh, international hiring. Wow. Right. Was there a particular reason why they decided to change that? I think it, so that was also a time of flux for the company. Okay. Um, because... Uh, um, Unilever had, I mean, Unilever was the parent company, right? And I started getting involved. And this was above my level, but from what I heard, there was a lot of, you know, changes happening, as would normally happen in the case of any parent and child company yeah, relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's fair. And then, so, so you had an internship, and then obviously okay, you're entering your second and final year of business school. Like, what were you thinking then in terms of what, did you have a strategy going forward with like, okay, here, this is how I want to approach it. I know product management clearly because that's the whole thing you've gone through up to that point. But did you know right after that? Like, okay, I want to go after this next or? Um, more or less, it was more a validation of whatever idea I had at that point of time. So okay. my second year was more, something interesting happened, unconnected to my career path, but yeah. spending those three months away from school kind of gave me a change of environment and yeah. made me kind of like realize and appreciate being in school, being back to school, <laughs> right? Like, like, oh my God, like, I just have one more year and in all likelihood, this is pretty much my last education. Yeah. Right? Like, no I don't, PhDs in the yeah. future. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I came back for my second year, I had that motivation of like, I better make good use of this. Yeah, enjoy this time. Yeah. And that led to very interesting transformations in my thought process. To give you an example, I no longer felt like I have to take courses corresponding to the number of credits that's required of the program. Yeah. Right. So I ended up taking extra classes. Okay. Right. So. Sure. Yeah. It was. It was more like a, you know, when you're bidding for electives ahead for your next semester. Sure. Uh, We're doing a different system, by the way. But yeah. Oh. Oh. Okay. But we've heard much about the bidding bidding system. But yeah. Oh wow, this is interesting. Okay, yeah. we need to talk about this offline. They we'll should chat. tell me. We'll chat. <laughs> yeah. So you're essentially supposed to pick five subjects, right? Okay. And they should total. Uh, they should. They should all add up to eighteen credits. No, six credits. Is that what it is? I forget. Uh, we had. I think we have fifth. Seven and a half each half, so 15. Ah, 15 credits. Yeah. yeah, that was a number, right? So that usually corresponds to five subjects, 
right? But then you look at these courses and some of them are so awesome that you'll end up having typically say six courses that you would love to do. Sure. But you know, you're forced to prioritize and say, hey, I'm just, I need to make a trade off and drop one. And that, at that point of time, I was like, wait, why do I need to drop one, right? If I really want to learn this, I should be able to find a way to fit this into the scheme yeah. of things. Right. And this whole two year break I'm taking from my career is to kind of like equip myself for the next five years or 10 years. Yeah. So might as well do it. So that was just like one, one thing that comes to mind when you ask me about, you know, how was second year different? What was that like? In terms of recruitment, my recruitment started pretty much three months into my second year. Second year. So, right. So I think we came back to school in August. That was the start of third semester. And, uh, by October, I had started recruiting again. Okay. I think by September, I had started the process. October was where I got my first interview. Okay. Right, for okay. full-time. Oh, wow. So October, you had your first interview, right, for a full-time position yeah. coming up. Okay. Yeah. Where was that? I remember. Just curious. Uh, I think it was Intuit. Intuit, okay. Yeah. So, second year, uh, you're a lot you're a lot wiser because of the experience of having gone through the process six months ago. Yeah. So, it was a lot more targeted approach. Okay. Second year, the interview process. Versus uh, when I was recruiting for internship, um, although I had the clarity of what kind of job I want to apply for, yeah. uh, the list of companies, of uh, uh, potential companies was uh, way larger and way broader. But in second year, it's like, no, I, I know for sure where I want to go. So although this company has a position that I'm a fit for, I don't want to go because I don't like working in that space, right? Yeah. Um, that was one thing. For instance, I had a lot more soft offers from the networking industry, which is my former industry having worked for Cisco. But I didn't want to go back there yeah. because I mean going back to doing product management and enterprise. And I specifically want to do product management with consumer-focused companies. Right, very clear on that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but, but again, just want to caution that that was very, you, you want to make your choices. That means there's going to be trade-offs, right? Like consumer-focused PM jobs are harder to get into. Um, but but I knew what I was getting into, so I was fine with those odds. Right. Yeah. Well, you're there, I mean, you're there to, to try to get to the point you want in your career. Like, I mean, that, no one takes two years of business school, pays money, whatever, like, to, like, settle for something they don't want. <laughs> right. In theory, right? So, yeah. Like, easier said than done sometimes. Exactly, like, yeah. Like, Having worked for six years beforehand helped me get that experience, right? Like, I was like, the reason I don't, like, I think I would I had conversations with some of my classmates who would be like, Oh, you know, I'm I'm curious, man. I feel like you do have chances with Cisco and this other company. How come you're not recruiting? What kind of gives you the motivation to say, "Hey, I'm going to walk away from this one"? Yeah. And I was like, I think it's because I've done those compromises in the past, right? I've taken up jobs that you know you're not semi-interested in, but you want to take it because you have to take it anyways. Yeah. And then you end up realizing two months in, like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Yeah, so I think experience is like a case of experience kind of making you wiser. Yeah. So that that helped me hold on because it's a very difficult thing to walk away from a job offer, especially when you're an international student and you're in your third semester and you have all of this business school debt that you know you're going to inherit in six months' time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a hard, a hard dif difficult thing to walk away from if you have offers on the table or options that are more easily there, I guess. Yeah. But then how did Disney come? About. Like how late in the process like was that your second year? Disney Disney was kind of um, Disney is an interesting story. I picked up this course in my fourth semester, okay. and it was a second half semester course. So it didn't start in January, but it started in March. So March of your last year. Yeah, the okay. last three months of school. Yeah, last three months. I, of, yeah, I took this course, and the the course was taught by 
an executive leader from Disney. So he was a senior vice president over there. Okay. And he's an adjunct professor at USC. Okay. All right. So he comes and just does that one oh, course. course. Yeah. Um, I didn't know it was taught by, you know, someone from Disney. What what caught my attention was when I was scanning the list of possible electives, um, the title was really interesting. It said Digital Foundations in uh, Business Innovation. And then when I looked up the description, there was a lot of tech company focus over there, tech strategy. Yeah. And that's totally my thing, right? Like my theme has been tech my entire life and I right. love it. And I'm like, okay, this is really cool. And then I went through the syllabus and then I think I went online and I went through the more detailed version of the syllabus. What I mean is, I think in when you're going through the elective list, you just get like a snippet preview. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So when I when I looked at the full blown uh, syllabus, I was like, wow, I really like what they have planned for each class. The case studies are on very relevant companies, which are my industry that I want to go into. Right. And uh, uh, one more um, additional piece of information was I think what was attractive to me at that point of time was they said at the end of that course they're going to have a pitching competition and there's going to be a bunch of venture capitalists from the industry coming in. I was working on a passion project, so I had my startup at that point of time. Okay. Right? So I was like, oh, this might actually work out well. Like, not only will I be learning from this class, I might actually get to speak with venture capitalists. So around that time, that's what I was doing. So I'd been working on this passion project for a mobile app to address some um, uh, pain points I'd noticed with college-going students. And I was talking to a lot of people in the industry. Um, that was So why I did that passion project was, it was my way of, putting into action everything I'd learned over the past two years. Yeah, of course. Right? A lot of product management I've realized is um, you learn by doing or experiential learning. And also, um, this is something I've noticed in me. If if I sit on an idea for long enough, that kind of becomes a test because at the end of that period, you go like, you know what? No one's doing anything about this. I want to solve this. Yeah. The intent is not to go get funded and make a lot of money. Sure, that's always there, but it's more that, that itch of... I see this problem every day and there is no solution in the market or there's no apps to deal with it or there's no way of, why do all of us have to deal with this problem? Right. Right. And, and I think that's, that's like a mindset I picked up from the entrepreneurial phase of my life. It's a, yeah. Right. It's, um, it's a very, very real thing in entrepreneurship. You, so yeah, you just tend to see problems or things that just keep, keep happening. You're like, well, I want to work on that because clearly it's not being addressed yeah. or not being addressed the way you think it should be maybe. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, anyways, going back to your question of how Disney was, that that led me to take that class. Yeah. And when I took the class, it turned out to be way more awesome than you know I even anticipated. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, the professor did this excellent job of creating this safe environment where anyone could ask any questions. Right. And in fact, to the point where, if when he asked questions and we'd answer it, he would stop us midway through if we used some jargon. And he'd say, can you explain to the rest of the class what that means? Let's focus on that. So he'd, like, he'd keep on peeling through layers. So it led to this interesting environment where I've never seen... Where there's very few classes uh, that I've taken along the course of my MBA program where there's that much level of participation. This was high up there. Yeah. Right. So it was really interesting. And the way the class was structured, um, every week we'd have the SVP, who was our professor, plus a guest uh, a guest speaker. Okay. And these were most often the VPs or other SVPs from Disney. Jeez. So week <laughs> after week, I was essentially being exposed to different divisions of Disney. And I was like, wow. Like, <laughs> so much of awesome, cool tech stuff you guys are doing. Yeah. Right? And um, that's how I started warming up to the idea of what they were doing. Vivek Sharma was a professor, right? And he had this division that worked on innovative ideas. And um, that's how I got exposed to the problem that they're trying to address. And that was a very interesting space for me at that point of time. Yeah. Um, what they were trying to do was trying to create an innovative environment 
uh, in a huge conglomerate. That's really difficult, right? Because it's like startups can innovate for a reason because they're not they're not shackled by not constrained by anything, right? Yeah, their size. You don't have the bureaucracy. But with conglomerates, it's not an unnecessary shackle. There are reasons the shackles are in place, right? You have so many checks and balances. Like when I worked for a startup, it's okay for things to break. The penalty is your boss saying, okay, if our servers are crashing, that's a sign that we have way more downloads can we, than we can handle. Good, let's go buy more server space. Yeah. Disney can't afford to do that. No, because your brand, yeah. Yeah, so there's unique challenges, right? So it was super fascinating. And I think at that point of time, I was recruiting and um, someone on his team asked like, hey, are you looking, what are you doing? Are you looking for a job? And I said, yes, I am. Are you recruiting? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, that's essentially how I got introduced to that particular role at Disney. Okay. And that was having met all those VPs and so many people from Disney, it kind of became a good way for me to start conversations and uh, get to that interview stage with that team there. Right. So you eventually got to an interview. So how, how was that interview process then at Disney? Um, Remember that one? Yeah, it was... I've been told it's not... It, my case wasn't a straightforward process given given the number of touch points I'd already had yeah, with them. That's, yeah, much different probably. Yeah, so I was first interviewed by uh, one of uh, Vivek Sharma's VPs. Vivek Sharma was the SVP, the yep. professor. Uh, I was interviewed by one of uh, the VPs on his team. Okay. And uh, that was Jarrett. And uh, he, after that, handed me off to one of his directors. Uh, and then uh, I had another round with uh, a product manager. And, uh, oh, there was a recruiter interview that started all of this. And yeah, that was the end of it. How how long was that process? Um, yeah, I, d- I think I think it took was that a, a month. A month. Yeah, a wow. month. And that was so surprising because it seemed like it seemed poised to happen much quicker because of how much interaction I'd had with those folks there. Right. And yet, that's the nature of the interview process. Right. It just takes longer. Than yeah. Time. So, and those are a lot of the lessons learned. So, whenever I speak with people, like I I give like I have. I, I do mentoring for people. So I constantly have people coming up with the question of like, hey, I'm dissatisfied with the job, which means I'm gonna apply for an interview. And a constant mistake I see people making is in estimating how long it's gonna take from yeah. you know, the point where you start applying to the point where you get that offer. Yeah, right? even with connections like you had. Oh yeah. But still. Think about that. That's nuts. Right? Like, yeah. It still took a month and you had all those connections you were obviously meeting and talking to throughout the last however many weeks that was in that class. Exactly. And it still took a month. That's yeah. crazy. Man. I think I think in fact it took one and a half months if you count the day I got the offer because from the day they said hey we're hiring you yeah um, and to the day the offer letter came through that was another two so the wait weeks. for that yeah <laughs> real quick though I want to hear about that startup that you you you, you mentioned your passion project what well, what exactly were you doing for that and what sure was it? um it was called Smart Grad App Smart Grad App okay. right uh, the problem we were trying to solve was um, making life easier for college-going students. When you talk about the education space, it seems like there's a lot of innovative things going on, but when you analyze it, a lot of the innovation is going in the direction of online education, right? Um, You don't have tools to help college-going students, people who are actually taking physical real-world classes, uh, deal with so many of the pain points they have, right? One one pain point that I noticed was... uh, when it comes to the simple question of managing and trying to understand what upcoming assignments and deadlines you have in this week. Yeah. Right. Um, when you look at it, it basically goes back to 
um, you're tied to the system that your university picked, whatever that enterprise learning software is. In the case of USC, it's Blackboard, yeah. right? Um, and when you spend some time trying to understand the steps that a student goes through to answer that question of, hey, what assignments do I have this week? It's, it's, it, it's, it's so circuitous. You have to open your email client because you're trying to look for the PDF of the syllabus that the professor sent you a couple of months back. And that syllabus is 10 to 15, 20 pages long. And you have to scroll to that particular page where the deadlines are set. Right? And you have to do that for multiple subjects. Yeah. Right? That's just one small example. Right? Yeah. The bigger vision piece was, uh, can we create a companion assistant for your learning experience such that um, at the end of the day when you finish your class, you can just ask your assistant, hey, what was today's class about? And it's able to summarize all the discussions that happened in the class. You have the tools in place there, right? You have like the audiovisual recording that's always happening. You can throw an artificial intelligence system into it that can do the natural language processing yeah. and is able to kind of like bubble up the best insights, right? And that's really important, especially for um, a program like an MBA where the vast majority of the classes are designed to be uh, discussion-based learning. It's case-based learning, right? The learning is not in the slides the professor puts up. It's more in what comes out of that discussion when someone from the oil industry makes a point that someone from the marketing industry never even knew was actually a challenge. Right. Right. So yeah, that was the space uh, that we were trying to address. Um, it started off in February. Uh, I had been thinking about this for nearly two, three semesters. <laughs> and uh, I think in my second semester, I took this course on feasibility evaluation of new ventures. So that was an entrepreneurial course that kind of gave me these tools to go about doing what I'd done back in the startup before I came to business school, but in a more structured form, right. compressed into three months. You wanted structure. Yeah. And at that point of time, I think it was just a, it was just a matter of time in hindsight, right? It's like, I've been thinking about this idea. It's been brewing in my mind for like one and a half to two semesters. And then next, I use that as my project idea for the feasibility evaluation class. Okay. And I think that was like, that's it. It's so evident that there's so many unanswered problems. I need to jump into it. So I think like, in the end of January, I started off. Um, so the first step I did was doing a lot of um, uh, customer interviews. So I just went to the courtyard. I was in a unique, lucky situation where I was pretty much living with my customers, yeah. college-going students. Helpful. Right? So I would go sit down in the courtyard, and I'd interview student after student, trying to understand, trying to confirm if what I was facing as a pain point, is that actually a pain point? Or yeah. is that something unique just to a few people like me? Right? And then also going through the the usual questions of testing if there is a monetary value to this, if people are willing to pay money for a service like this. Right away. Yeah. Yeah. Who's paying for it? Yeah. So I think at the end of like 37 conversations, it was pretty clear what were the key pain points over there that people wanted addressed or desperately were struggling to deal with. Yeah. Right. And after that, um, the next step was, okay, how do I create prototypes to do rapid uh, evaluation? And around that time, I picked up this book, Right. It was this amazing book that spoke about how you can create, you can you have a process-based approach to evaluating ideas in the course of one week. Okay. You don't have to, you know, like actually invest three months in f a team of five engineers just to validate an idea. Right. Right. So the lean uh, startup type of thing, right? Yeah. So at that point of Design time, Design Sprint, maybe. Yes. There's uh, a yeah. Jake Knapp. Jake Knapp, the Sprint they, book by this, Jake Knapp. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Design Sprint. Okay. So I was reading that book. And his book became an inspiration because I was like, wait a minute, when I spoke with, so I had a team on by then. I had one engineer who was interested, uh, he was on board, and uh, I had a UX researcher with me, somebody I'd worked with before in Dollar Shave Club, so he was on board for the 
working on this as well. Okay. And when the three of us brainstormed and got together and tried to do an assessment of like, how long is this going to take? Um, obviously the engineering estimate for it was, hey, this is gonna take us one, one and a half months. Yeah. Right. And when someone tells you one, one and a half, it probably means two to Always two and a half. Right? And Always I'm like, more. two and a half months. I mean, this is February. At the end of two and a half months, I'm gonna be graduating. Yeah. Right. And there's nothing else to do. So that plus reading Jake Knapp's book it was written yeah. by made me go like the man who ran Google why, for a long time. Why why have I just accepted that we need two months? Right? Maybe I need to step out, kind of like take a step back <laughs> and rethink this. Maybe there are cheaper, quicker ways to validate. Yeah. And we found our answer. The answer was just to come up with printouts of what the product would look like and go find a bunch of test customers and yeah. give it to them and talk to them every day to understand. Uh, whether the printout was making sense for them or not. Yes. Right. Uh, the reason I say I have to talk to them is let's take a step back. Right. It sure. was like I think I had this idea of like, oh wait a minute, uh, all I have to do is. So typically, when you're creating an app or a website, one of the first few steps is uh, creating the Wire, visuals. Wireframes. Or... The wireframes. Okay. Right. Yeah. You create the wireframes and you're trying to do some pseudo tests. Or once you create the wireframe, you hand it off, and then you have an engineer who complements and puts in the technology to get that wireframe to life. Yeah. Right, it's the engineering part of it that's taking so much time. Right. Why don't I try to kind of just create wireframes and find a way to have my users use it? Yeah. But then the obvious challenge over there, and that's that's the kind of like quote unquote opposition that I got from so many of my friends who were well wishers helping me with the process was, hey, if you're creating a wireframe that's actually a printout, you're missing out on so much data, right? If it is an app or if it's an electronic product, you can actually look at the number of clicks and all of that stuff. All yeah. that good stuff is gone now. So I said, okay, fine. I'll try to find ways and means to. Uh, compensate for that, right? So what I came up with was essentially, I'm gonna give these printouts to people who I know have a very desperate need for this. So they have an incentive to kind of reciprocate and respond, right? And so beforehand, I'd spoken to 37 people. Uh, I reached out to all of them asking who would be interested. And I think around like 17 or 18 said yes. And basically that funnel kept reducing. And finally I managed to bring it down to like about eight people who I could count on, who I knew if I would call them, they would actually answer and give me feedback. Right. Right. Then essentially after that, it was uh, kind of talking to these people and collecting feedback from them on, you know, hey, how was that printout? Did it actually help you? Right. And since I'd worked with user researchers in the past, I had some kind of an understanding of how to go about it. Yeah. It's never straightforward. Like you just ask the person the direct question and they tell you, right? Yeah. You have to account for the person trying to be nice to you and telling you what they think you want to hear. So I had a user res um, UX researcher friend at that point of time. He's a professional. He had done a master's program doing with this, so he was the expert. So he and I teamed up and we worked on this and then we did about two weeks of researching and validating the idea, right? And um, I think around that time, college uh, is the best time for you to start an entrepreneurial venture. This is probably something I should have mentioned that I realized <laughs> in my first semester Oh, itself. by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because having worked for a startup, I was very intimately aware of the amount of expenditure that goes into kind of setting up servers, right? Sure. Uh, like there were months where, you know, we'd pay from our own, like until we got funded at our local technologies, we would pay from our own personal credit cards for the Amazon web hosting and all of that stuff. Yeah. And then I come here to business schools, business school. Yeah. And uh, in my first semester, I hear about all these pitching contests and I go attend these pitching contests and turns out the, the prize is them just giving away $10,000 worth of Amazon web hosting space, right? And then I start, working with the entrepreneurial cell, and I realized that uh, the barrier is so low that some of them, if you have a good enough viable idea, they will just give you the credits for you to go host yeah. stuff. So you have a lot of these credits available, right? So yeah, anyways, going back to um, 
uh, smart grad app we did all of this validation right and there was a bunch of pitching contests at that point of time and i think we entered into one of the pitching contests and i'd also learned from one of my courses in business school that i took an entrepreneurial course on venture capitalism and one of the best pieces of advice i got was someone asked the question of when should you start pitching to investors and the answer was you're always pitching there's never <laughs> a hey i'm going to wait for 3 months get good traction and then go find a venture capitalist no yeah. a true entrepreneur is always uh, pitching, pitching right and uh, i think one of the best piece of advice that professor gave was how do you start that process um if you do some basic research you're able to find out different firms deal with different spaces so you, you're able to narrow it down to the vc firms that deal with the space you're dealing with right and uh, after that all that remains is to set up the conversation either get introduced or contact them directly right. and what you ask is you know not hey is this fundable right it's more like hey i'm working on this you let me know if you're interested in having a conversation i'm just looking for advice so that really helped and um at that point of time i had developed quite a good network cuz i was i was the vp of career events for the entrepreneurship club so i had, as part of my responsibilities i had gone about interact with so many entrepreneurs in the LA startup ecosystem to put together panel discussions and events so i had a network of sorts in LA so whenever i would meet venture capitalists or investors or angel investors um and as part of the conversation like how school what are you up to these days i would say hey i'm working on this passion project right and it's surprising people love to give feedback on ideas or weigh in on something interesting right right um so that's how i essentially started i wasn't even pitching right i was just trying to have conversations with experts who have done this before yeah and just throwing open the question of here's what i'm doing do you think i can do one of these things better and that was amazing because that made networking and those informationals so much better and easier until then i've done informationals in the past they're hit or miss in that uh you're trying to build a rapport with that person at a point of time right right and if you if you hit it off it's great if you don't it sounds like a mechanical conversation here it was very clear right they could they could hear what i was up to they could ask me questions and i could tell them a 5 minutes worth of what experiments we had run to deal with that particular challenge they're talking about right uh, so we had like a context to talk about so my network skyrocketed by that time because all i had to do was talk to one senior product manager or an entrepreneur or an investor and they would say you know what i would put you in touch with this other person that i know who's exactly working in the space that you are and so here's the funny part when i started off in february i spoke to some of my mentors and well-wishers about hey i'm starting this passion project um I feel like it's going to suck up a lot more of my time than is possible. What do you think I should be doing? Do you think I should be focusing on this or just focus on my academy? That was this more? year, right? February this year. Yeah. Actually, yeah, February of this year. Goodness gracious. 2018. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so everybody a lot of the the well-wishers, the common piece of advice they gave me was be careful because these passion projects are actually a lot more occupying than you think. It might detract you from your job hunt and your uh, academic uh, responsibilities. So the way I decided to form my plan was I have clear priorities. I'm going to do my recruitment. I'm going to do this parallelly and I'm going to draw a line for my passion project of May 11th because I was the day my course would finish, my program would finish, right? And I was like, I'll keep on working this working on this until May 11th and the proof is going to be in the traction. If I get traction by then, that's going to be the answer of do I want to continue doing this after business school full time. Right. Right? And I think someone along there asked, "Oh, are you looking to get investor funding by then?" I was like, 
that's a bigger problem that's a nicer problem to have let me drive towards that getting to the stage <laughs> where i'm like hey i have so much that now it's worth talking to investors right but funnily that problem got solved in march okay because i was talking to all these investors and product managers and industry experts someone introduced me to this silicon valley investor who coincidentally i had worked on a project with one year ago right and when when i spoke with him it was more of a hey we've had entrepreneurial conversations in the past i think you can help me a lot with some of the challenges i'm facing do you have 30 minutes and he said sure i have 30 minutes and 15 10, i think not even 15 minutes i think 5 minutes in he stops me midway through what i'm talking about and he's like how serious are you about this and i'm like what he's like are you doing this as part of a class i was like no i'm not doing this as part of a class i'm serious about this and my plan is i'm going to work on this until may 11th and by may 11th i would have gathered enough traction to answer the question of do i want to do this full time or do i want to recruit for work so he said no that's not a problem this definitely has legs i can invest in this and then it kind of became a more detailed conversation about what kind of investment are you looking for what do you need at this point of time are you looking for a debt round and things like that and he's like in that 30 seconds suddenly the conversation goes in the direction of like holy shit like, <laughs> that's nuts yeah <laughs> i remember th- this actually happened when i was in the dotrip courtyard yeah and i'm having this conversation i'm like i'm like oh my god like <laughs> shit just got real it got it got extremely real what yeah. happened then Yeah so and I think that was the realization right like in general over the past few years I've always lived by this motto of uh, whenever I take on a project or an endeavor there's always a question of what about that biggest obvious challenge and I I say to myself more like that would be a nice problem to have so let me put in the initial effort to see if we get to that stage right forget that problem that right? would be a great problem to have yeah right it's it's like I think like one one common example I've seen happening is when my like when we're doing job hunts right it's like hey what if you get offers from google and facebook what right would you do? <laughs> right and it's like wouldn't that be a nice place to be in <laughs> <laughs> right so so i think that was the mindset i had because when someone asked me initially when i was trying to evaluate this they were like what's your end game with this are you looking to get investor money i was like well if i if i get to that stage that would be awesome but turns out the biggest problem got solved so now the ball is back in my court the onus was on me to essentially go prove what i said is possible okay and trust me that's that's a that's a bigger burden than you think yeah right um, do you want to actually go for it uh, it's like oh man. yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's quite a what what did you do tell um, i was like okay fine i think at that point of time i assessed where's my timeline it's march okay um And by then I had been recruiting for 4 months before that right, right. so I'm like this has not right. affected my recruiting in any way I'm able to balance all of my priorities and I'm able to recruit at the same time it's not like this is sucking in so much time that you know I'm saying oh my god I have I've been sleeping only 2 hours a night no I still have more energy left in me to go and this is like exciting stuff so I think when things are exciting you suddenly have new amount of energy you do right So and and oh of course what really helped credit I had a team by now I had a team of four people right with so, that app with your app idea yeah with the right. app so I had like a bunch of uh, my classmates on board and they were like hey this makes a lot of sense and I'm on board with this and one of my classmates even went to the extent of saying this is awesome why don't you take that investor money I don't mind giving it the next 6 months of my life for this we're about to graduate and I'm going I don't mind stopping recruiting work because I know this is like super interesting and we have something on here right because you want to recruit after you have an MBA Yeah. Yeah, so I think that was the thing and we basically ran with it until uh April end May. Okay. Um but yeah, it's just I had to take like a long hard look at if I wanted to go down that path. Yeah. And uh it's really difficult like when you're an international student, 
you need sponsorship, you need a visa. Yeah. And that typically comes from an established employer. Yeah. Um, kind of not really, at least with the current administration, it's not so conducive to say, hey, I'm going to go do something entrepreneurial. Right. Right. Um, so that was there. And I was like, hmm, you know, maybe this is not the best time to go about doing this, maybe a couple of years down the line. So what is the current status oh. of the company or that business, or that potential? Um, I told yeah. myself I'd reevaluate it uh, five months into my job because now my job is my priority at Disney. Of course. Right. Of course. So I, I told myself, you know, I'm going to put this on a pause for now. The initial validation has already been done. So it's pretty, in terms of challenges, there are challenges, yeah. but at least they're slightly more straightforward than in the past where they were really abstract. Right. So that's where it's at. I'm looking to kind of find someone else who can work on it with more free time than I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, but it's still there though. So it's still like a thing that I didn't know. I didn't know if it had been like scrapped completely where you were like, nope, nothing. No. So it's still floating around your mind up there. It is. It right. is. And I mean, the way I see it is like. I'll have to see those wireframes, by the way. <laughs> I'm really curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. But what are you going to say? Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, just echoing what you said. Yeah. It uh, definitely is uh, there at the back of my mind. Okay. Um, yeah, I need to figure out how I'm going to kind of make it part of my process. But to that, Disney. Yes, You're Disney. at Disney. I know it's for anyone listening this far. It took a while, but we're at, we're at Disney. So <laughs> Disney, how long have you been there? How did you eventually get it? What's it been like? I want to hear all about it, man. Mm. Let's see how you got it first. Yeah. Oh man, is this like way longer than your average podcast episode? Yeah, no, I mean I've had as long as two hours. So we're, oh wow, we're good. yeah, yeah. I'm sure you'll you'll do a lot of trimming, and I'll yeah. So it's all good stuff. Yeah, this is the marker. Here comes the Disney part. <laughs> um, I'll tell people beforehand. Don't worry. They'll know, they'll know hour and a, hour and thirty six minutes. In. It's Disney. <laughs> it's, yeah. This is this is like a classic strategy, right? Like, like you you want the best part. The best part is at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So uh, Disney. So let's start by saying that. I work for a very uniquely different division at Disney. So what yeah. I mean is a lot of the people who contact me about Disney, I've noticed that their perception is more to do with uh, the movie business that Disney is into or, you know, uh, the parks and all of that stuff. Um, yeah. I work for the innovation division at Disney. We aren't attached to any one line of business per se. Our job is, in fact, to kind of work with any line of business that has a problem that we feel some new piece of technology is an ideal solution for. Right. So in that sense, we're kind of agnostic. Okay. Right. Um, the common theme in the things that we do or in the range of projects that we have is digital innovation. So as long as there's any division within Disney that's dealing with a problem that lends itself really well to a digital solution, yeah. we can go in there and jump in. An obvious example that comes to mind when I say digital products is apps. Right? Of course. Um, that is one of, like Disney has so many apps and we have an entire e-commerce division. Right, so those are all classical digital products, but there's so many non-traditional di- digital products, and you realize that only when you get on the job. To give you simple examples, the ticketing system of getting you inside the park, right? You go through the turnstile. Uh, there's a whole set of digital components to it, um, and there's so many other behind-the-scenes things that's not so glorious, but extremely critical for the business to continue. For example, um, customer support deals with a lot of trouble tickets, right? And Disney, given how large it is, the volume of uh, customer trouble tickets is so huge. Emails, sure. tweets, and all of that stuff. So how do you keep a handle on that? right? How do you deal with all of that information that's coming in your direction? How can you kind of throw machine learning at it and 
automate and make life easier for the customer service team to pull out the right piece of data and say, hey, this is where all of our emails are going. Of course, I would love to get into details, but you know, <laughs> I, I can only be broad. Sure. Right? I have understand. confidentiality clauses. I understand. Yeah. So that's the nature of the business. My title is innovation manager. Okay. Practically, what what that's most similar to in a common industry role is product management. Okay. Combination of uh, product, project, and program management. Okay. Explain the difference. Product, for program, and program. Or like, yeah. What, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give an oversimplified definition which sure. is in a way comprehensive. Um, let's start with product and project. Okay. Project is the easiest to define. And the project management involves three key elements. Time, budget, and resources. Okay. A project manager is constantly project. juggling between these three. Right? A project manager is the one who's the guy or the girl in the room um, telling everybody or reminding everybody, guys, these are our timelines. We need to deliver uh, the product uh, two months from now. Right. Right? Uh, he or she is the person who's bringing up those concerns. Um, the product manager is... Um, and Product manager is slightly harder to define because it widely varies from company to company. I was going to say com- different companies have different right. yeah, responsibilities. Yeah, the one that I feel does the most justice is a product manager is the mini CEO of the product. Right. Um, their job is to worry and to treat the product like their baby. And the reason a product manager's role emerged was, you know, when you put in a room of a bunch of people together to create a digital product, you're going to have engineering, you're going to have QA, that's quality assurance. Right. You're going to have marketing as well. Each one of them is focused on their individual piece. Marketing is focused on who is our customer, how do we market this to them. Engineering is focused on how do we make sure we use the best possible technology that scales, and so on. So in this piece, what gets left out is no one's focusing on the product itself, and that's the product manager's job. Uh, In a more practical sense, what that means is it's the product manager's responsibility to focus on what does the vision for this product look like, right? Let's take an example of a you know, the Gmail app itself, yeah. right? Today, a Google Maps, let's take Google Maps, right? So the product manager for Google Maps would not just have to worry about, hey, how do we go about making the experience better for users today, uh, the way Google Maps is defined, but also like one year down the line, uh, should Google Maps do something new that's like a new need in the industry or the world has a need for? Uh, for instance, when Google Maps started off five or six years ago, it was simply about helping people who are driving cars navigate from their home to their workplace. But over the years, they added on more features, like what if you don't have a car? What if I'm someone who uses public transport, right? Uh, It's not easy to answer that question because now you have to kind of like go work across different public transportation departments, pull in their schedules, uh, tie that into the user's location at that point of time, do the calculation of how long is it going to take for the user to travel to the nearest bus station or train station, right? So that's... The product manager is a combination of a lot of strategy and execution. Okay. Uh, strategic in the sense of what's going to happen one year down the line, how do I prepare the team and the product towards that? Right. Execution in, you know, okay, we have this roadmap, one year down the line we want to use machine learning to do something really cool. But what does that mean? Like, who should I involve in the project? Do I need more engineers? Do I need marketing specialists? All of those conversations. Right. Uh, program management is... Uh, program management is very applicable in the context of uh, startups that have a young and growing product. So what I mean by that is when you have startups with a young and growing product, typically say 100,000 users or like 500,000 users, um, you come up with feature requests, but it's no nearly not mature enough to say this is, this is our product roadmap, right? So at that point of time, you're more of a program manager. You're saying, yes, 
I'm doing it for the sake of this feature, but I'm not necessarily the product manager. I'm doing more things like keeping in mind what the timeline looks like, right? Also balancing out what, you know, what should be the deliverables on this feature? Who should it benefit and things like that. Right. Um, yeah, program management also is used a lot more in um, supply chain, inventory-based jobs. Like okay. Amazon has a lot of program managers. That's a classic place for you to kind of uh, see how a program manager role fits in well into that ecosystem over right. there. Right. You, you'd have program managers who basically handle that whole process of uh, two-day delivery. Right. right. So they would be the ones who go about orchestrating what are the pieces that's needed for this. Right. To optimize that process. Or... Yeah. So, so that's... Okay, so... And you say at Disney, you're innovation manager, which is more like... Oh, yeah. So think of the innovation manager at Disney as the product manager for the early stage of a product. Okay. Right? Um, let's start with why you need people for the early stage. Yeah. Right? If you take a typical product manager and... Product manager, a typical product manager who owns a product, let's say the Disney app, is very well equipped to incorporate new features or incorporate new technologies. But the burden that they have is productionalizing, which means um, it's not so easy and it's not so quick to integrate something, right? If a request comes in, the product manager does the research and they speak and they get together, they speak with senior management. And once there's a clear justification from a user perspective or from a business perspective to introduce a certain technology or a feature, they will probably go add it into the roadmap. Or they will prioritize and try to see, hey, how quickly can we add this into the engineering team's backlog? Um, But in big companies, all of these things can start to take a lot of time. Before you know it, you know, you're talking about a launch date that's seven months from now, right? (laughs) And somewhere midway through the product cycle, you might realize that, hey, it's not seven months, turns out we need another seven months. So now you're talking about one and a half years down the line, right? That's what I mean by the burden of productionalizing things. So what we do is uh, our team kind of has taken the view that let's let's split that task of the initial phase and the subsequent phase. Let the traditional product manager handle the subsequent phase of productionalizing it. The innovation managers don't have to worry about the productionalizing, right? Our target as innovation managers is to come up with a way to accomplish that idea in a proof of concept manner. Okay. So that essentially means everything that happens um, from day one to up to about the first year of that product or that feature's life. Okay, say that again. So, so from day one to all the way to the end of that particular feature. Yeah, like the first six months, right? Let's let's take a generic example. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I need to come up with a generic... Like, I can't talk about proprietary stuff and I'm only thinking of proprietary <laughs> examples. Now. You know that moment you have when you don't want to think of one thing, but that's the only thing that's yes, in your mind? Yes, of course, that's the only thing, yeah. Yeah. naturally. Yeah, so let's construct a uh, generic example. Um, let's say Amazon decides to change the two-day delivery promise for Amazon Prime okay. to six hours delivery, right? Uh, and now let's say that there's some new machine learning technology out there that actually helps us do that in six hours. Machine yeah. learning is one of the components that's going to yeah. help us. This is a very, this is a very crude example. Yeah, we're rolling with it. Let's go. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, let's say they're going to be doing that, right? Um, so the first step you want to do is to confirm if people even want or people will go for the idea of six-hour delivery, right? It seems like logically they will, but what if when you actually implement it, turns out that people aren't willing to pay a penny more for that six-hour promise, right? right? Turns out the satisfaction is not tremendously more. When you went and checked the satisfaction, people are like, hey, six hours, two days, all the same for me, right? So what you'd want to do is kind of 
run measured experiments to validate that initial premise and then see, okay, so we have some validation and this has some legs for us to prove it, right? So now that it has validation, what's the next stage? We can't roll it out to all of the United States. We'll start by focusing it on launching it in this very pilot part of the United States that we choose, right? right? Maybe LA, maybe downtown LA because a lot of, there's a high density of a lot of our prime customers over there. Right. Right. And we have an ideally located warehouse right there in downtown LA. So since the warehouse is closely located to the uh, customers, it's so much easier for our logistics team to actually do that run in less than six hours. Right. Right. These things take a lot of time. Even coming to this thought process, it takes about, I would say, at least two to three months to validate and to prove that there is this this project has legs. And then after two months for you to kind of scale it out and say, let's launch this in a controlled manner to 100 customers in downtown LA. Yeah. Right. And then after that, okay, downtown LA worked well for us. We learned these lessons. Let's try to expand to all of the southern half of LA and see what happens. Something's going to break. Right. Something's going to break at that point of time. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of six months, you're like, okay, so turns out that wasn't the best way of going about it. What we do know for sure is people like this idea and they're willing to pay $10 more. What we don't know is how do we actually go do that at scale? Because when we did it for 100 people, we barely managed to fulfill the promise. <laughs> but now that we're turned the dial up and we're doing it for like 2,000 people, the whole system is breaking and the logistics team is like screaming and saying, we don't have enough time to do this. Yeah. Right? So those are all the things that the innovation managers do. Okay. We're essentially there to kind of give that initial push and prove that not only does this actually address the problem as we hypothesize, uh, it is scalable. Right. And the way we go about doing it is, at a very simple level, the way I describe this is, there's two parts to my job. Um, one part is finding the problem, which means I go within Disney, speak with several div divisions. We call them lines of business. An example would be the e-commerce business. Another example would be Disney Cruise Lines. Um, yet another example would be uh, Disney um, Disney Vacations. Right. So Disney has so many divisions. Yeah. Each one of them has their own... Uh, business drivers and revenue sources, right? I talk to each one of these divisions, get an understanding of what is their biggest key pain points, right? What is your biggest pain point? Some division might say, hey, our pain point is uh, we have a lot of uh, failed transactions because, you know, the banking partners take a lot of time to validate the process. I'm just giving you hypothetical yeah, examples. Yeah, for sure. Right. So we have an understanding of the problem. And then the second half of my job is to kind of go out there and meet startups, Right. So I have a research team that's able to put together uh, all the well-established startups in a certain space that are leveraging the perfect technology and have a turnkey solution. Turnkey essentially means that it's ready to go. It's right. ready to scale. Yeah. Because scaling is important for Disney. It's not enough for you to be a Series A startup but has never handled anything beyond 5,000 transactions a month. Right. So we have a research team that does a very good job of um, mapping out that space. And then we make contact with these startups. We call them vendors. And get an understanding or get a demonstration of what their technology is and whether it's actually capable of what we think it is and whether it works in the use case that we're picturing, right? And once we find a match, we basically get these people together. And in-house, what that means is we go try to find a relevant team who can eventually own this or productionalize it. Uh, in a lot of cases, that means a traditional product manager who owns the digital component of the product. And we keep them in the loop from day one. So yeah. although we're leading it for the first few months, we have the product managers attending all those meetings so that it's so much more easier six months down the line or three months down the line to hand the keys off to say, hey, now it's your turn to kind of scale this to all of the world or all of the United States. Right. 
your team itself, how big is your team? The team that you're on? Within Disney's one We're we're just this we're four innovation managers. Okay. Five innovation managers. Five innovation managers that all do the similar type of yes. role. Okay, okay. Within like the massive thing that is Disney. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what that experience, so you've been there four or five months already. Like what's been I guess what's been challenging about that what's challenging about that role itself? I mean, I guess I assume there's just just a learning curve with learning you know, the particular program being at Disney and then the particular challenges that Disney has. But like, what's been challenging for you in that role? Uh, the biggest challenge I've identified so far, and that's easy to answer because I actually think of this quite often, yeah. is um, um, you will have certain divisions that work at a much, much slower pace than you're ever used to, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's so hard to get them on board or to get things going. Uh, to the pace that we're used to doing, right? So a lot of the times, like, the pressure is on us as innovation managers to come up with a proof of concept as quickly as possible. So typically the timelines I operate on are, if I start today, two months down the line, I need to have a deliverable to show, Yeah. right? Um, but then the nature of those divisions is, for so many reasons, right? They don't necessarily control it. Sometimes certain businesses are, that's just how they function. Yeah. Things, like, it's it's too risky for them to consider doing things in a short time frame because they don't want to break whatever's going on right now. Right, it's important. Right? That, yeah. yeah, we have a brand reputation and all of those things. They're answerable to their own metrics and whatever uh, revenues they drive in, right? So it kind of presents this challenge where you can see that it's going to be a clear, great win, but then you need that internal division to kind of have the right mindset to accept it and to be willing to play ball with you at that point <laughs> of time, right? And... Um, yeah, this this is like I think we studied a lot of this in business school, right? These problems. Yeah. Um, many times it's it's a case of you seeing the problem a certain way and it's clear, but the other side doesn't see it that way, and or they have these constraints that they can't articulate, but they have it, so they're operating under those constraints, so they're unwilling to move at the pace at which you want to, or they're unwilling to even move in that direction. Right. Right. Um, I think a very nice analogy I'd heard in business school was the boiling frog problem. The idea that uh, um, when when you work with these um, companies that are part of Sunset Industries, right, their days are numbered. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of time. But they don't see it that way. Their their perception is, hey, we know our days are numbered, but we think we have another ten years, or we have another ten million to extract from this whole situation. Yeah when everyone else is like, no, the writing's on the wall. It's not 10 years, it's closer to more to the tune of one or two years. Sure. Right? That's the thing. And this kind of goes into that topic of the innovator's dilemma. And that's yeah. an amazing book that Clay I've read. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Clay Christensen. The short of it is, what is the innovator's dilemma? Uh, why do big companies fail and let smaller resource-constrained startups uh, kind of upend them in the whole process? It's not that the big companies got lazy. Right? It's not that they were nimble. There's a lot of cases where the big companies invested resources to go investigate a potential idea, but when they got the results, it seemed that their biggest customers, which is their most paying customers, and that's who you want to listen to when you're a big company. You listen to your top X customers, right? right? The top X customers said, no, we don't have a need for it. So you make a logical conclusion saying, oh, we, we, did, we did our homework. We asked our customers if they wanted this, and they said, no, they don't want it, and that's proof that we don't need to invest in that. But then what the startup is doing is, we have this piece of technology, these customers don't want it, but then we've already invested money. We're desperate for survival, so we're going to go try to find alternative customers. We're going to keep on pitching until we find the right customers. Right. And they go do that, right? 
And suddenly there is this market that's created that was not there earlier. And the only way you can get to it is by doing those iterations again and again, yeah. right? If you just go out straightforward and try to do market research, it's very difficult for you to even feel if that's there. Mm-hmm. So variations of that is something we face internally, right? Yeah, um, that type of company. Yeah, this is especially true for divisions that aren't digitally native. The na- so, so that's one thing I like to stress on, right? A lot of these conversations when we talk, people just assume, nobody says this, but an unsaid assumption is, oh, you're talking about digital businesses within Disney, right? Disney is one of those companies where there's a lot of physical components to digital things, right? It's like an example of um, Airbnb versus Uber. Both seem like digital companies, right? But in the case of Airbnb, it's more of a platform. A lot of what they do is software. Sure, there is some part where they interact with players in their ecosystem, right? Right. But Uber has a lot more to do with that because there's a logistic challenge. Sorry, not Uber, Amazon. Amazon was the company I had in mind. Amazon has a website, but behind the scenes, there's so much of a logistical component and they have an entire division that maintains sure. the warehouses and whatnot, right? So we have that too at Disney, right? And that's just the challenge you have to deal with because that's the nature of the business. You can't just say, hey, <laughs> we'll deal, you know, like, oh, life would be so much easier if we deal with a business that was digital native. Yeah, right. Yeah. you don't have that option. And it's one of those things too, any... I don't know who said this. It might have been the Netflix thing, but like you have to be willing to cannibalize your own business sometimes too in terms of innovation. Because oh, yeah. if you, if you yeah. don't, then someone else, it might have been Bezos. I don't remember who it was, but they're basically saying like if we don't, or even Apple, if we don't, it was, I think it was Apple. Yeah, I think yeah, it was Apple. If we, I got to get to it eventually. Yeah. If we don't like build that product or do that thing that's going to cut into our current business, someone else is going to do it and then take it over completely. So it's like yeah. you have to do it <laughs> even though you're cutting onto your own thing. I've, yeah, it was the... Um, iPhone and iPod, I believe, or something like that. But, like, yeah, you have to do that thing yourself because otherwise some other company will. So that, that, that seems like such a struggle for these slow, these big companies because that's the, the exact issue they face, too. Like, you have to innovate and do those things. Oh, but this, the big customers are fine with it. Okay. Well, <laughs> certain things, it just makes sense that you kind of have to roll with it. Exactly. But I don't know how you do that necessarily. I know. think Apple is the most quoted company when it comes to talking about the topic of yeah cannibalizing your own product line, right? Yeah. They just decided that one fine day, hey, we're going to stop making iPods, yeah. right? We're going to stop making the iPod shuffle. And, you know, <laughs> there's been a progression ever since, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Peculiar thing, but... It, yep, yep. Imagine challenging, especially at a place, um, even like, like Disney, who has a lot of, how can I put this, legacy, like, <laughs> things to them. Yeah. <laughs> let's, put, let's put it like that, I yeah. guess. But, th- I mean, they are, I guess they... They have the streaming platform soon. Is that Disney? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a different things. publicly coming. launched that we're going to start doing our own streaming service. Yeah, that's what I mentioned, yeah. yeah. So there's like that eventually coming up. So it's like they're doing things. Um, what's that like with you at, at that company? Like, do you, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm just curious on what you're thinking in the future, like, of being there. It's got to be exciting because it's just it's still Disney. It is. I, I really like this particular role I have. Yeah. Because um, it's, you know, when I look back at all my experience and it goes back to what we were discussing earlier, right? I worked for a big company and I worked for a startup as well. Yeah. So two extreme ends of the spectrum. Right. Right. And there's trade-offs in both. There's challenges to deal with innovation in both of those places. And what we're doing here seems to be a very interestingly unique way of dealing with the challenge. Right. Big companies, the biggest challenge for them is to deal with how do we advance ourselves into the more modern era, right? Because the challenge you have, and there's something we learn a lot in business school, is this thing called culture, right? Culture turns out to be such a bigger problem. Culture is part of the DNA of the company, right? You can't just, you can't just wake up one fine morning and say, hey, we're a billion dollar enterprise, let's just change and become like that young company tomorrow, 
no, you can't, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you deal with that constraint? How do you operate in that space? And I feel like the structure that uh, my bosses and the, the way our division has been designed yeah. seems to be, it, it has promise in terms of tackling the challenge, right? Because now we're saying that, hey, there's this innovation division. Not only, we're not talking about um, innovation in the sense of, hey, we've come up with something that you can use five years down the line, right? Yeah. We're not talking about flying cars. We're talking about, we will innovate in a way that you can incorporate into the production line or it can see the light of production within three months, within six months, within one year, right? So you're talking about, so our team is called Innovation in Production, IIP, okay. right? And I feel like, I, I like I like to on, stress on the, the part of the production, right? It's innovation in production. Gotcha. It's not just, can we come up with this innovation that inspires a company to do something three years down the line, right? It's more right. like, can we come up with this innovation that not only solves the problem, but also uh, has a clear path of how this gets productionalized. Right. Yeah. So we're having conversations from day one with actual production partners. Yeah. And that's uniquely different because uh, a lot of companies deal with innovation and in the traditional sense, a common approach to what an innovation division does is just coming up with concepts and showing proof of, hey, here's what's possible five years down the line. So let's align ourselves and create a three-year roadmap or a five-year roadmap to get to that point. Right. Moving forward in your career, what what, do you, what are you hoping for? Obviously, product management's been a huge part of it, and you, you finally are in this type of role. Like, I guess, what are you hoping for in your career moving forward? I just really want to uh, increase a lot more of the depth when it comes to my product management skills. I want to okay. get better at building that skills, okay. um, doing it for different kinds of products. Uh, so far, what I worked on is products in the super early stage. Like I said, I was there from day one with... Uh, bounty app, right? Yeah. From zero downloads all the way to uh, 200,000 users. Yeah. Uh, and then, oh no, we went, we got to half a million. Wow. Right? So I was there. But then what happens to a product in the maturity phase, right? Or a product that's been around for three years, a product yeah. that's collecting revenue, right? So that's, that's in this phase of my life, I'm working on products with a lot of revenue focus. So going forward, I would like to kind of be able to continue doing that and doing it at a much larger scale. Okay. Right? Because scale challenges are unique in their own sense. Like if you take Airbnb or Gmail or Google Maps, even even the smallest of changes, you have to think through a lot because <laughs> you're talking about one billion users. Yeah. Right? So that, that presents its own learning opportunities. So I'm looking to continue going in that direction. And I really want to do something entrepreneurial. And when the time is right, it'll happen. Right? Awesome. One thing I learned from my entrepreneurial phase in when I was working for NanoLocal is... Um, the decision of doing something entrepreneurial, it's not planned. It's not like you can say, hey, I'm going to save up enough money and by March 2020, I'm going to quit and start looking at entrepreneurial opportunities. It's not mm-hmm. like that. It's more like you're always, it's a side hustle. You're doing something on the side in whatever way. And at some point of time, it clicks. Either you get frustrated and you go like, you know what? We've gone so far. No one else has. Let's jump into it. It's a clear opportunity. Right. Or you're more excited and it comes in more formal opportunities like, hey, I didn't even intend for this to happen, but I got investor funding. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, it's funny you mention that because I think about it even with like, some people ask me like, you know, why'd you go to business school if you're interested in entrepreneurship and everything? And I'm like, well, to tell you the truth, like I knew I was going to f- figure out something else to work on while I was in business school. And then as I'm applying to these schools and stuff and I get into USC and then it comes January and I actually... I'm like, I'm going to do a launch a career site. I feel like people don't know what they're doing. Like, I feel like I'm not sure what I want to do exactly. And like, mm-hmm. I launch a mm-hmm. career site. And they're like, I want to launch a podcast on the same thing. Because I don't think people understand what career paths to take or what it's actually like in a company. 
And so I even seen that with only because I went to business school. It wasn't like I planned that entrepreneur adventure. Like, oh, I'm going to start this business here. And it's like, this is just taking it on a life of its own. Who knows where this will go? Like, I don't even know. You know, next year, maybe this thing fizzles out. Maybe something happens and I do something else. I don't know. But, like, to your point, you, don't, you can't just plan for that. You yeah. just kind of have to do it. No, that's good. I completely agree with that reasoning. Yeah. And um, we live in really good times in that we have access to tools to test those things out, right? Like, maybe 10 or 15 years ago... Uh, and I remember reading this article about how, what was the sizes of the series investing rounds mm-hmm. in 2003 and four, sure. And it was ridiculously more expensive, right? Because uh, hosting a website meant you have to buy your own servers. Yeah. You kind of need to create an air conditioning room and all of that stuff to host a website. Right. Now you just swipe your credit card and Amazon does all of that. AWS, right? <laughs> it's, it's genius, yeah, right? It's brought down the cost of compute by like several orders of magnitude. Yeah. And then there's also that measure, build, measure, learn approach, right? That's that's another book I'd highly recommend. Eric Rice, uh, Lean Startup. Lean Startup, yeah. Right. Right. So uh, you build, and then you measure, and then you learn from that. Right. Uh, So, and and even going back to uh, uh, Reid Hoffman's uh, Masters of Scale podcast you were talking about, all the Silicon Valley unicorn companies, right? Um, Airbnb, LinkedIn, so many of them. Uh, When you go back to the origin story, and that's essentially a common recurring lesson in a lot of uh, across uh, Masters of Scale episodes is you'd rather listen to a hundred highly engaged customers than have a thousand customers who drop off after a week or after two weeks. Right. right. Yeah, that's what I, I think it's the Airbnb thing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But let's say you want those in, super, super engaged. You learn more from them. You have them. And like, I think you say something about like, yeah, we, like a hundred people love your product. Yeah. Yeah. It's like people like so-so about it. And and there's an advantage to that, right? Because that means you have to invest resources, be that your time, your money to buy service space or quitting your job to go to uh, do this full-time. Um, you can do it in phases. You can do it based on the results of how many customers you have and what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we could probably talk for a lot longer based on this going so we fast. Can. But we I'll can. just end with this. I just want to ask you... Any advice or last words for people interested in a career in product management? Just because, like, you've obviously we've talked, we've gone through a lot of different things with that, but any parting words in terms of that or just in general people with clear careers? Anything else you'd like to leave them with? I guess I'd say try to find um, as many opportunities as you can um, working on the ideas you have. If you don't have an idea, try to find ideas that other people are working on who like it and just you know reach out to hey how can I help how can I involve in this that's essentially how my interview process was when I was looking for jobs right after Cisco right it was more me writing to this product team saying hey I really like your product right and I think I can do some stuff over here or you guys can improve on it Uh, how can I help Um, you'll be surprised at how many people actually play ball on that topic right because what a, a startup is always hungry for feedback especially in the initial phase and you know product building is not that easy so focus on you know doing all these things with with a short time scale what i mean by short time scale is um, most often what i've noticed people do and there's something i used to do myself initially is when it comes to a career transition or something like product management we try to think the more time i have the better so if i have six months over the next i'm going to take three months off from my job or i'm going to take three months to do the planning and talk to as many people as i can that's good, but it's very easy to get caught up in that and then 
have six months go by and say, I'm still in the talking to people phase, right? Try to have like one week goals or one month goals, right? Whatever it be, it could be, hey, I'm going to learn to code. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be technical things, right? Even if it is, I'll talk to as many people as I can. Say, how many people can I talk to in one month? And at the end of one month, let's see how much of that I've accomplished to see what my next step is. It's one of those things. I think that's that's what's helped me a lot. Like trying to incorporate as much of doing as possible rather than just planning or thinking or researching. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a ton. I'm like glued to everything you're saying because I'm very curious about this stuff. And like even product management was one of my main interests before I really decided to like launch all this. So thank you so much for the time. And I think people got a lot out of this this conversation and we'll definitely have to chat again. I hope so. I had an awesome time, man. Awesome. You have a good one, man. Yeah. You take care, too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.